Savvy Sabs podcast on call-in. This is episode 24, Uniting Across Class Lines. Russell Brand and Jimmy Dore discuss uniting across class lines. Is it possible for people to forget about the left-right divide and focus on class lines? What are your thoughts about this? So I see we have callers already lined up. I'm going to go ahead and make Eric the first caller. Hey, Savvy. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Long time no talk. I've been, I mean, I, I'm off constantly, you know, on, on the chat line, but I haven't been able to get on the live streams too much or the call-ins for the last several weeks just because of work and everything. So I try to catch up with all the replays of all the streams you have. Oh, awesome. Uh, Thanks so much. Yeah, but you guys have been definitely, you know, killing it uh, on RBN, CJ, uh, Nick, JB, Rome, and all of you guys. So thank you for what you do. Uh, you know, this this question is interesting because I, I recently have had a couple conversations with people just off the street. Uh, and came into the conversations just kind of being open-minded. Uh, one of them was with with this guy uh, who was, um, he was, a, I think he was a, a Lyft driver. And uh, we started to talk. He, I could tell that he, he was doing well for himself. He was just sort of doing this on the side. And he started to talk about, uh, I think, like taxes and uh, living wages and how he sort of opposed living wages and I kind of let him talk, you know, into what he wanted to say. Uh, but ultimately, you know, after, after he finished talking about it, I wanted to come back to him and explain to him, like, look, look at me. I said, I'm, I've been fortunate because I went to a good school and now I have a good job. But that doesn't mean that everybody else can do what I did. I just got lucky. And if you think about it, I said, the most important thing that we have is people. That's the most that's the number one thing we have. Right? Forget about everything else, assets, uh, anything that's not a human being ultimately doesn't matter because it can all be replaced for the most part. So if we focus on people, everything else goes out the window. Everything else becomes better for you, me and whoever else. I said, if you got a mother, if you got a father, they need medical care. You know, so if I'm doing good, doesn't mean that everybody else is. And so we need to get out of that mentality. And I, I got really passionate with this guy. But what was good about it was he was willing to listen to me, even though I got passionate. And he was respectful. And, and I was, too, for him. You know, he gave me his ideas and I gave him my ideas. And, and at the end of the conversation, we could this, at least agree on some of the things that we were talking about. And not, I'm not saying that he agreed with everything I said, nor did I agree with him. But at the end of the conversation, I think we felt at least I did, I think he did too, that we could come to an agreement on some ideas and that ultimately we're probably closer to what we want to have done that's good for both of us and our families, right? And I think that if you do that enough, you got to be able to propagate that conversation in a larger audience. And you got to have the right people saying the right words, explaining stories, examples of how we got to where we are today so that people can reflect on those stories because stories can tell a lot without really pointing fingers at anybody. And then people can digest that story into their own perspective. And in turn, 
you know, a light bulb goes on where you start to say, yeah, you know what? I don't have that much difference with that person over there, regardless of their color, regardless of their uh, their sexual orientation, regardless of whatever. Once you start to break it down, people start to accept, okay, you know what? This person's got a point. I, we actually probably have more in line than we don't. And, and so then that's where you start to bring the, the meaning of the minds, right? And But that takes time. You can't do it with everybody because you always have these people that are crazy and they get too excited, right? So, But you got to do it at a, at a root level, at a grassroots level, and then slowly build. You know, once you start to build uh, credence or, or respect among people in the community, other people will speak on your behalf, which is even better than when you're speaking for yourself. When somebody comes in with word of mouth and says, hey, you know what? Savvy's all right. RBN is good because of X, Y, and Z. Someone who may not be willing to listen to you will give credence to someone else because they have a relationship with those people. And that's how you start to really foster and mushroom the ideas that we need to you know, bring about. That's really good, um, Eric. And this is the thing about talking to people that you may disagree with. Right? Like one of the things that you said that I really liked is the fact that, you know, just because you're doing well, that doesn't mean that everyone else is. And you're right. We have to get out of that mindset. You know, I think a lot of the people on this call, like, you know, understand that and identify with that. But I can't tell you how many people I've known that have felt the same way. They feel like they're like, look, you know, I did. I did well. I went to school. I got a good paying job. I'm doing fine. Why can't everyone just do what I did? And that's the problem. People are looking at it from an individual perspective instead of looking at it from, you know, a mass perspective. And when you look at American people, the majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So when someone makes that statement that, you know, they're doing well, why can't everyone else? I think it's important for us to point out to them, like you do realize that the majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and that not everyone, even if you went to college, not everyone that went to college is doing well financially either. I mean, I'm one of those people. Like I, I went to college. I have a lot of student loan debt, like a lot of my friends, you know, and, and some of you on this call might be in the same situation. And so I think that we have to look at it from and also a global perspective and just see like, okay, I'm doing all right, but how is everybody else doing? And yeah. I think important. That, that's a great point. You know, for me, I come from, from I got four siblings or, or three. So there's four of us in my family and uh, two of them are not doing very good. Uh, and they live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, they don't have uh I mean, they have the, the, the very minimal um, uh, medical, medical, uh, I guess, health coverage, but it's hard for them. So for me, it, it doesn't take that hard, you know, time for me to find, figure it out, you know, that most people are not doing well. Because all I have to do is look at my siblings and I can see that they're not. And I could also see that they work hard uh, and they have been working hard. Uh, so, so working hard alone is not the answer. It's the systems that we have designed, how they support people. And, and part of our problem, because in a capitalist uh, culture, everything is focused around assets. And, we, and when, when I mean assets, it's usually inanimate objects, right? Uh, buildings, uh, cars, things that are not living. In reality, we, we need to shift that 
the, the, the actual value is at the, at the people level. But innately, because of the way our culture is built from, you know, little kids to when you get older, we value things more than we do people. And we see that in the government. We see that in TV. You see it everywhere. So it's propagated. So it gets ingrained our, in our minds like, you know, these things are more important. But reality is it's people. People are what's most valuable. And, and when, once you start to break it down to that point and you can relate it to somebody's sibling, you can actually make those connections, too, because you can say, OK, you're doing good. How's your sister doing? How's your brother doing? Not, not everybody is going to do good, even if you go to school, like you're saying. Uh, and so that's where we need to bring the uh, the meaning of the minds, and and that's why you know Fred Hampton was so uh, such a fear. His, his their concepts were so feared because of what they did. They united people, uh, and 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 those who are in power cannot have that happen. They cannot have people like you and I talking to the population at, at large because our ideas actually resonate. If you start to break it down to uh, from person to person, especially if you can talk to them individually, you can start to actually, okay, here's what why we need to do X, Y, and Z, and why it would be beneficial. I have coworkers who, you know, they talk, uh, they fear socialism, right? But interestingly enough, when I start listening to them, not all of their, either their parents or siblings, they're not all doing good. And that's where you can get an opening for a conversation to break into somebody's uh, perspective, you know, where they kind of have this shield like, hey, I'm good. I work my ass off. So therefore, you should be able to do the same. Uh, really? What about your brother? What about your sister? Did they not also try the same and they couldn't get to where you got? So we need to be able to provide for them, too. Right. So there's there's all opportunities for us to break down those barriers to get to people. Uh, we just have to be able to leverage those opportunities and have communicators like yourself with larger audiences so that we can actually propagate the ideas that you guys have in RBM. Uh, because once you have more people listening to them, especially now with the younger generations who are more willing uh, to listen, you know, the younger generations are actually, I think th there's more opportunities with them because they are not doing so good. Uh, they see all the BS that our government's feeding us. And, and, and ultimately right now, as we speak real time, the U.S. is completely collapsing slowly but surely but it is i mean the whole world is up on the u.s's uh hypocrisy and the other countries the global south uh you know if they continue to succeed uh china and all these other countries they are you know taking their own agendas away from just catering to the u.s and you know i think in years to come there's probably going to be more of that happening and maybe it, it's even going to accelerate in, in the next 10 years or so, so. Yes, um, I was gonna say, I, I think you're a hundred percent, you're spot on, Eric. Um, I think another thing too to ask is, you know, how many of those people that say, oh yeah, well, I made it, I did it well. How many of them actually came from some type of generational wealth? That's another thing we can ask too. Even when you look at people that have mom and pop like businesses, okay, yeah, but did your parents pass that down to you? Like, it's not as easy as, as people think, but you're right. The younger generation, that's really where we need to put a lot of our focus because they're also less likely to buy into the two-party system too. That's right. That's right. And if, you know, I'm really hoping that as we get out of more out of this pandemic, this, or the, what we currently have, 
that you guys have the opportunity to do more speaking opportunities or more speaking, uh, I guess, presentations, if you will, uh, because I think if more audiences get to hear RBN, uh, it's just going to grow your your uh, your viewership uh, because you can see YouTube is definitely, you know, making it so that you guys don't grow. Uh, you know, this whole thing that you've been doing with uh, with with Jackson, you know, that guy, uh, he was he was booming. The guy was growing. He was nonstop doing streams for like four hours. And, you know, and I can't really listen to him for four hours. And, and you know, but I give him a lot of credit. You know, he's, he's talked a lot of good things about. I mean, he's done his research. I love when he's debated and demolished, you know, all these guys like Sam Cedar, uh, Destiny. Uh, and a few other guys that he demolished on the debates. I mean, the guy definitely was killing it. Uh, and some people don't agree with everything he says, but I, all in all, I think he was doing a good job and he was beneficial to to what what I see in, in our ecosystem. And, and I see it as a loss that, that YouTube is doing this to the kid. So, and thank you for you covering, covering this about him. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Eric. Um, I was just going to say, I actually heard from him earlier today. So he, he really does appreciate people passing on, you know, like where they can find him now and things like that. Like, you're right, he was growing, and I think they considered that to be a threat. I also think he was mass reported to. I'm just being honest with you guys. Um, and I've said this before, it doesn't really matter. Um, sorry, guys, I'm at the store. Uh, Yes, I take you guys to the store with me, um, <laughs> but I'm leaving now. But it doesn't really matter whether you, whether people like what he has to say or not. He still has the right to say it, and that was my whole thing about it. And and I'll go ahead and be honest with you too. You know, some of the people that have recently like been coming after him and have been smearing him on their own shows, and I've seen people doing that. You know. That didn't really help. That didn't really help. That's because right. that brought... I, I, yeah, that brought more attention to him. And then it's like, now people probably know what was happening. And they knew it was happening. So all these are for someone who's a member of that audience to be like, oh, well, this other kid's being Jack Beagle. And they're saying that Jack Beagle is... So let me go over to Jack. Let me watch one of his uh, his videos and let me back. And I'll tell you guys, I know this stuff because I got an email uh, one time. I don't know who this person was, but they sent an email to me and a bunch of other podcasters saying, "Please mass report." And it was a video. It was a YouTube video, and that's why I say I know what happens because I've received those messages. So it's really sad. It's really unfortunate what was happening to Jackson. Like, I hope, you know, they don't take his channel down. Um, he's, he's very smart. He's, he's fucking smart. He knows, you know, he, I don't agree with him for everything, but he was kicking ass. Like, he really was. And I just, well, and I, well, really I, like, I, I noticed, you know. Now, what I was going to say, Sam, I noticed there was a lot of hate. You know, I, there was a lot of people that I would see some some of the smaller channel uh, podcasters on the left. They, they would always throw like little stones at the guy. Uh, and there was some hate, you know, just actual hate from even good. What I even consider to be good, hardcore leftists. Uh, they were throwing hate at the guy. 
But you know what? It's it's like this. He had there's enough there's enough opportunities for all these podcasters, including uh, Jackson and other smaller guys that are coming out right now as we speak. That there's there's enough space in the ecosystem that there's no need to hate on him. I don't think he was doing anything bad per se, uh, and he he is young. He was he was kicking butt. And, uh, you know, we're not going to agree with them on everything he says, nor should we have a purity test. You know, I'm not pure. Uh, you know, there's things that I've done that are that were that are wrong when I was younger. And even now that, that I've gotten older, I made a lot of mistakes. I continue to make mistakes. I try to do what's right. Uh, and so you got to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I would see that Jackson over the last two years that I've been listening to the guy. And I don't listen to him every day. I think he's done a good job overall. And he's, he is young. He's going to have some bravado. He's going to have some, you know, energy that's different because he is so young and it's going to take time for him to humble himself. And that's just part of growing up. You know what I mean? It's just how it is. Agreed. Thanks so much for calling, Eric. I'm going to um, go ahead and bring uh, Mary in. Thank you, Savvy. Uh, Thank you. Thanks so much. I, I do, do just want to add, uh, Mary, before I bring you on. You know, there's there's some people that like those of us that have the smaller channels, some of the old left don't want us in this space. They don't like the fact that we are that that we're kind of like they, they see it as like we're stepping on their toes. They see it as though we're taking viewers away from them. You know, anytime I hear podcasters make comments like there's too many people, there's too many podcasters doing like independent media. Well, what who are you talking about? Because you weren't making those statements before there was an RBN, before there was a Jackson Hinkle, before there was a Frank Analysis, before there were all these other smaller channels that are newer now. So some people don't want us here. And trust, we, we, we realize it, we recognize and we know. And honestly, my whole thing is, is like, it shouldn't matter how many podcasters we have in this space. The more we have, the better, because the more people you'll be able to reach. We don't necessarily have the same audiences. Uh, I don't necessarily have the same audience as as RBN, believe it or not. I can actually look on my YouTube analytics and it tells me who my viewers are. So we have some of the same followers, but not all of them. And so I just think that like ego, mark my words, ego is going to be the death of the left. If the left does not succeed, it is not going to be because of the activists. It's not going to be because of the people who are telling you to fight. It's going to be because of ego, because nobody wants to work together because there's too many egos in this space. Uh, Mary, I'm going to go ahead and bring you in so you can go ahead and unmute. Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, my God. I can't believe it worked. I checked. I Googled, I Googled how to do it. <laughs> and uh, I followed what it said. So uh, I 100% agree with you. And 100% agree with Eric. I love what he said. I love the way he said it. And you're right. Hubris is like, and this is not a new concept. Um, uh, are you still there? I just I mute myself when you talk so I don't get the okay okay all right um well hubris being the destruction of mankind 
I'm sorry that you know that's not a politically correct word, but it's a word that's been around a long time. Um, is not a new concept. It's a concept that's been around since the you know Socrates. So it's like just common sense to say, you know, if we are so caught up in ourselves and we are arrogant and we don't care about others, we will not be successful because being a good uh, country, county, city, community, all has to do with being good to each other. So, I mean, and I'm the farthest thing from a Marxist, but <laughs> I listen or and read Freddie DeBoer, who is a Marxist, and um, he has a lot of good things to say. So I really appreciate you. You know, I'm, I got to be honest, I'm a little depressed over what's going on right now. I'm so depressed that this 80-year-old white man is president. I just cannot believe that they conned these young Democrats into voting for this man. He is, I mean, they just refuse to put up someone who cares about people and is genuine. They refuse to have good candidates. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. I hear you and I totally agree. Um, you know, the fact that Joe Biden was able to win and he lost in Iowa. Yes. Not, oh, my God. Not, it really, you it's know, insane. <laughs> they knew. And, and I predicted earlier on, because having lived in South Carolina, I knew Bernie Sanders was not going to win South Carolina. I said he might come in second or third, but he's not going to come in first place because I know how voters think in South Carolina. So I knew he wasn't going to win that. But the fact that just because Joe Biden won South Carolina, all these people in, you know, who was like, yeah, I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders. You know how many people I knew who changed their mind after Biden won South Carolina and they were like, oh, that's a wrap. That means that people believe that he's the one that can beat Trump. So we might as well go ahead and support Joe Biden. And I'm like, no, what what is wrong with you guys? Like, don't you see what's happening here? Joe Biden, out of all the candidates on that list, I knew that he was he would be the one that could win South Carolina because he was Obama's VP and people in South Carolina still heavily love Barack Obama. And then you got right. Jim Clyburn and they have a lot of like they have a lot of love for Jim Clyburn because the guy does a freaking fish fry. I kid right. you not. He does right. nothing for the American people there. Like the people in his district, it's one of the poorest in South Carolina. But they vote for him because he does a, a stupid fish fry. And I'm like, I could mm -hmm. do this for you for free. So it's 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 the optics. It's like what Roger Meadows said. People, a lot of times they'll vote for people based on personality instead of actual policy. And that's what they did when it came to Joe Biden. They were like, well, I don't care. He was Obama's VP and I like Obama, so I'm voting for him. But the fact that just because he won South Carolina, now all of a sudden people were starting to change their mind. I'm like, he won one state. Bernie Sanders won Nevada. He won New Hampshire. No, nothing to you, right? Well, and the, the I hate the press for like being against Bernie, doing everything they can to promote something like this, and you know, just trying to shove Bernie out again for the second time. 
it sickens me. They don't belong picking our leaders. They aren't us. They don't work at McDonald's. They don't work at Target. They don't work at Amazon in the warehouse. They aren't us. They, they are spoiled people who live in a bubble and they don't belong choosing for us. So I'm sick of these people. Are you there? I am. I I hear you, Mary. I know it's annoying. And yeah, you know, things are done for a reason. Like even when it comes to the early primary states, there's a reason why those states are the ones that are the early primary states. You have Iowa, you have New Hampshire, you have, then they trickled over to Nevada and then they come back around to South Carolina. Iowa and New Hampshire are up there because number one, Who lives in those states? What they try to do is they try to see who does rural white America want first. That's what they check for first. Then they say, okay, now we got to see what people of color want. So then let's circle on over to Nevada and then let's circle down to the South so we can see who black people want. (laughs) This is done on purpose. Yeah. That's why it's done that way. So, that's why you'll never see them have like California be an early primary state because that's a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, imagine if California was one of those early primary states, Bernie Sanders killed Joe Biden in California. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. I'm feeling really depressed about it. And I mean, he's a disaster, which is no surprise to me. I remember because I'm 65 and I remember when Barack Obama picked him as his VP, I was so upset. I was like, why would you pick this dimwit? The guy was a dimwit always. And he's just blabbering, you know, oh, I talk a lot. That does not mean you are worth anything. But he picked him because he wanted someone who was so dumb and maybe wouldn't be a problem for him. But he, he would stand behind him and roll his eyes because the guy's such an idiot. And then you, he, then you basically make him president. What are you doing? He picked Joe Biden because he knew that Joe Biden could help him win over white moderates. I, I understand. But couldn't he pick somebody with a brain? I mean, it just sick. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think the man is a dimwit. I think that some of these people are so stupid. You take like, you know, incredible, like uh, uh, they used to rave over Beto O'Rourke. The guy's a dimwit. But I just cannot believe it. But they don't care. All they want is people to go along with the program. And the whole thing is not about being smart, because if you're smart, you might talk back to them. They want you to go along with their agenda, period. End of story. That's right. All right. Thank you so much for calling in, Mary. Thank you very much, Tabby. Take care. All righty. All right. We got Aaron for the people here. Aaron, how are you doing? You just have to unmute, Aaron. You're invited as a speaker. Hey, what's up, Tabby? Thanks for having me on. Hey, hey, hey. All right. (laughs) I'm being right. I'm in a silly mood. Um, (laughs) I want to get your thoughts on this, Aaron, and then I'm going to come back and pick up Andrew. Okay. This specifically or uniting across class lines. Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, I think I think it's possible. I think the biggest thing 
is to break away from the propaganda that we're being inundated with time and time again. Um, I think it's a lot easier when you're not plugged into mainstream uh, outlets and mainstream media. Um, And I think once people are out, you know, in the real world, you know, fighting together, like you like take unions, for example, unions is a great example because uh, you have people on the left, you have people on the right and they're all fighting for a cause and they're fighting together and their sole purpose is to, you know, fight for more power within the workforce and away from the top. So I think, I think it's possible. I just think people need to uh, kind of put in the work and then realize what's happening, realize how intentional the propaganda is. And I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of how I see it. It's, it's hard. It's hard to talk to somebody that's like, you know, brainwashed. <laughs> it's hard to talk to someone that um, is ignorant of facts. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, this listening to, uh, to the, the last person talk, you can just hear it. Like, I, I agree totally. Like, it's just really disappointing. I remember going through the disappointment because um, I still ha- was holding out hope, um, thinking like, yo, they better not cheat. Everyone's watching. They better not cheat Bernie again. If he wins legitimately, like he has a chance and all this. And, and you're right. Like you see Iowa, you see why they go to Iowa. I actually used to live in New Hampshire and like politics is everything up there. And um, it's just a part of the culture. Like, you know, they, they really embrace the the political climate that really embrace like the politicians really kiss ass to everyone that they see there. And, and it's a hundred percent. Like you look at the demographics. I was like one of the only black kids in my school. So it's just, um, it's just wild. And then now I'm in North Carolina. And one of the things I wanted to, to say real quick, I, I saw that you covered um, the situation going on with Matthew Ho. And I appreciate you so much for, for covering it because it's wild down here in North Carolina right now. And I don't know if you saw, but like, I'm actually one of the plaintiffs who's on this lawsuit fighting with him, even though we're doing our own thing with the, so I'm a part of the People's Party of of North Carolina, which is not affiliated with uh, MPP at this point. We, we voted to do our own thing, but we're still standing in solidarity with the Greens. We still, a ton of us all gathered signatures. Hey, can I interrupt for a second? Because I've been waiting for a while. And and you're a speaker, so can I just get my piece in? Sure, sure. Real, real quick, all I'm gonna all say right. is like there's a, there's an update with that uh, with that lawsuit, which is um, there's like an emergency injunction that got filed. It like literally just came out. Um, I got emailed on it, and um, it's it's looking good so far. It's looking like he might win, but, but I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you go. I I, I appreciate you uh, hearing me out. All right, thank you. I'm I'm just kind of getting tired here. It's like I'm getting fatigued, so I wanted to interrupt. Sorry about that. But just want to say my piece. All right, Andrew. All right, so uh, I just wanted to point some things out. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is that uh, in Libya, before we destroyed Libya, there was free university, and the people who went to university got paid while they were at university and they got housed. 
And the reason that I know that is because when I was at university, I lived in a dorm with my roommate that slept in the bed next to me was from Rwanda. And then in the next uh, bed, in the, in the two beds in the next room in the same dorm, there was a guy from Ghana and a guy from the Ivory Coast. And all of them told me that they did not like Barack Obama. They really, really disliked Barack Obama a lot because they thought that Barack Obama was going to do something positive for Africa. And in their countries, their countries looked to Libya as a leader and a place where disadvantaged people could flee to to get free housing, to get free education, and to get paid to go to university. So that's just a little bit of the background of Libya and what was going on there and the quality of life that they had there was very high. And I've heard that not just from the three, uh, these guys were all master's degree students um, in petroleum engineering at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. One of them was mass, actually one of them was master's in electrical and then two of them were in petroleum engineering. Um, but anyways, so um, to, I, I find it incredibly interesting because I've been very interested in Libya ever since I had that experience with those three, uh, those three roommates from uh, Africa. And, um, and I find it really interesting that Nominki Konst who we were talking about earlier, Nomiki Konst worked for some nonprofit organization in Libya, and she doesn't have a whole lot to say about Gaddafi. She doesn't have a whole lot to say about about Libya. I, I have watched her for a while, and I've never heard her say, say anything about Libya, and I find it incredibly suspect that she was in Libya before the Benghazi incident. And, and, um, to to go, if you want a good explanation of what happened in the capital um Benghazi at the US embassy I would recommend watching the Republican National Convention in 2016 and this is something about uniting a uh, uniting um people together the Republican Convention Republican National Convention in 2016 they had veterans who were at the US M- the US embassy in Benghazi when the terrorists attacked the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi. And they said that it was Hillary Clinton who was the one who was making them stay there when they were asking to get back up or be evacuated or whatever. And it was the Gaddafi loyalists who came and protected the U.S. Embassy. So what's implied there is that that was a definite false flag operation. I mean, if you can connect the dots... Anyway, so I find Nomiki Konst incredibly suspect, and I think it's pretty obvious what I'm hinting at is that it's it's she's probably intelligence. And then if we look at Operation Paul Mason Bird, which is my my term for Mason Gate, Operation Paul Mason Bird, because it, it's kind of like a you know the next edition of Operation Mockingbird, where they pay um, some cutouts to do propaganda against certain organizations right and and then the netflix documentary who killed malcolm x if you've watched that the fbi um is infiltrated 
Malcolm X's right-hand man was the FBI. Malcolm X's right-hand man was the FBI. The people who killed Malcolm X were FBI operatives. And um, the, the FBI asked Malcolm X to join them. And, you know, I could go on and on listing different scenarios where the FBI has done these types of things, trying to kidnap the mayor of Michigan, uh, blackmailing the pedophile from Iceland, the JFK assassination. There are so many examples that I can give, and it would be so absurdly ignorant to think that the FBI, in light of Paul Mason Gate, in light of like everything that I just said, is it would be so naive to think that they were not uh, a part of the movement for a people's party. It would be so naive because the FBI has infiltrated so many organizations and it would be just completely naive to think that the, the movement for a people's party was not infiltrated or the FBI w- wasn't trying to infiltrate the movement for a people's party. And I followed that whole thing incredibly closely and I watched all different sides and I dug into it very deep. And it's not a question of it's not a question of if the FBI was in there. It's a question of how many of the people that were volunteering for the MPP were involved in operations that were either directly or indirectly connected to intelligence or private organizations that were meant to influence um, in in favor of the imperialists. So um, what regardless of. Regardless of of all that, um, and regardless of uh, you know whether they were infiltrated or whatever, they're pretty much dis- being destroyed. Um, and um, so, and I, I think there's a lot of uh, other examples I can give. For instance, there's a book by by Caleb Maupin called Bread Tube Serves Imperialism. And I've I haven't actually read the book, but I've listened to Caleb Maupin talk about this book. And it it draws Yeah, he came on to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah I've heard him. Yeah anyways. So yeah, so there's all these connections and I and I think that what I'm what I'm getting after is that I think that I think that uh, this is what I wanted to say after all that, that, that was just, that was just, you know, just my thoughts. But my point of calling in is to tell you and tell everybody that I think that if the revolutionary blackout network started a political party, that that would be a game changer. And, and to know that, I mean, obviously there's going to be infiltrators, but I think if the revolutionary blackout network, since now that the people's party has pretty much failed i mean it, it seems like they there was some definitely bad actors some people who are can't can't control themselves but but to chase after the people's party and say bad things about them like why are you so obsessed with the people's party i i just i just don't understand it like the vanguard the vanguard is suspect i mean the Vanguard is very suspect. Status quo, Owen Higgins, that Owen Higgins guy, like that guy is suspect. I mean, we're talking about no Mickey Constant bread tube, but those all those people are suspect to me.
Can I just jump in for a second, Andrew? Um, in reference to Nomiki, one thing I've noticed too, cause like, you know, Nick has like pointed this out on RBN a couple of times about her involvement in Libya, right? And anytime someone points that out about her on Twitter, she doesn't really have a good, a real response about it. She really doesn't. She really doesn't really go into what that was all about. And so, you know, I have to be careful what I say on here because I don't want her to come back and be like, oh, I'm going to get you for slander or whatever. But um, she's suspect. And I, I think a lot of us us realize that, like I said, I, I showed you guys tonight. Why is she sitting up there cheering on Crowley's uh, cousin there or niece, whatever she is, cheering on her? And she's trying to smear Kristen Gonzalez. I don't buy it that she didn't realize that Kristen Gonzalez was not running in this race. And even when they did change, they redrew the districts as the candidate. I felt like the moment you found out that there was already a progressive in that district, you should have dropped out of the race. The fact that she's staying in to split the progressive vote to me is suspicious, but it seems like something that she would do because I feel like it's all vanity for her. Um, in reference to, uh, uh, Eon Higgins, I don't know how you pronounce his name. In reference to him, he was the one, one of the people who smeared us over at RBN when we did our general strike summit. He heavily smeared us. He stole Robin's graphics for the general strike summit. And of course she got back at him because it was copyrighted and he didn't have permission to take those graphics and put it into his Substack article. He also smeared the marches for Medicare for all. He's smearing the march for Medicare for all right now. Again. This guy, again, you got to be wary of these people. Like, really, yeah. like, why would you put all this time and energy into smearing direct action? Yeah, he's suspect. He's, he's for sure a suspect. And I'm so happy that you um exposed Dumiki today uh, on your on your stream because, I mean, there was a lot to unpack there with what Andrew said. But, for, like, I, I would not be surprised. I mean, obviously, we would need more proof. But at the very least, she's doing the uh party establishment uh bidding and that crowley uh endorsement is pretty much everything you need to know about that as far as cia i would not be surprised at all um she's she's shown us who she's been who she was for a while now it's not really i mean as soon as she started running that shouldn't have been a surprise there's a lot to unpack there about mpp too uh the real quick wanted to add like you look at even Nick Brana's history, it's kind of weird. Um, you know, he's in Virginia. Um, and you, you go, like, I think I saw it on his, like, LinkedIn or something. Some of his previous people. Now, granted, you know, it's not weird that people used to be Democrats. That's not the part that's weird. But it's just, like, he used to intern with, like, like John Kerry's, you know, administration. It's just, like, it's just head scratcher. So, I mean, there's a lot that Andrew said that, you know, obviously you would need more proof. But uh, as far as actions go, um, I, I, for one, I went in there in good faith as a volunteer. And there's a lot of people here. Mark is, is on the, one of the callers up there and he he could probably speak to this a lot as well. I can't wait to hear from him. But, um, yeah, uh, there's a lot of people who went in there in good faith and, and tried to do the right thing. And obviously it didn't work out. And. A lot of that stuff was intentional. Um, some of us, some of the states, Marks in Washington, I'm in NC, we're, we, we're not giving up the name People's Party. Like, as a, on a state level, 
we're the People's Party. We have nothing to do with them. We're basically fighting to take back the name and we're our own entity. And uh, similar to the idea of like RBN cr- creating their own party, like what that's basically what we did. Like we incorporated, we registered with the state and we're creating our own party. And we're doing everything that they promised they would do, but didn't do anything to help us to do it. And we're, we're just going out and we're, we're doing it on our own. And part of, and this to tie it back, part of it is connecting that left and right and not like dismissing people from, you know, these party lines and instead focusing on class solidarity, focusing on uh, workers uniting, focusing on the things that we can uh, agree on and, and moving from there. So uh, that's my two cents on that. Awesome. Um, well, Andrew, thank you so much for that information. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> I was waiting like all day. I was seriously waiting like all day. I, w- I was trying to go to sleep early. And yeah, anyways, that's just my little personal issue that I'm going to bore everybody with. So thank you so much. I love, I love all of you. All righty. Thank you so much. All right. We're bringing in Frank. You are the next caller. You just got to unmute. Got to hit that unmute button. Just got to unmute. I'll give it a, a couple of seconds. But, um, yeah, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, this is why I'm, I'm actually not a part of any political organization. I'm really not. Like, I was excited, like, you know, when MPP started. But, you know, after Bernie and everything, like, I have been very hesitant to join any type of political organization. I really have. And so... That's okay. You know, I'm not a part of a, a organization per se. I, I stand alone, but that's all right. That's some unnecessary headache I don't have to deal with. Yeah, and I'm kind of the same way. If I'm being honest, part of part of why we're doing what we're doing is because we can control it. Like we know ourselves. Everyone who's working um, in the party in NC, we know ourselves, and we know you know we're not gonna let anyone come through and, and co-opt us or we're not, you know, we know what we stand for and what our, our morals are, what have you. And it's hard to put trust. It's like for the exact same reasons you just saying, Sav, it's hard to put trust on others. Um, knowing how often people just either get bought out or co-opted. But when you see something come along, that's legit. Like for example, Matthew Ho, I was like, all right, well, we got to help them. They're further along than we are. This is about getting uh, like Medicare for all on the ballot. I don't I'm probably still spending like 80 percent of my time outside doing direct action and stuff like that. But the time that I'm spending for the inside game, electoral politics wise, this is it. So, I mean, and, and we're seeing and they're scared shitless. Like we're seeing what they're doing. They're fighting tooth and nail. They got Hillary Clinton level lawyers coming after uh, people in the state and coming after Matthew Ho like in this Elias group. So it's wild. It's wild. Man. Okay, Frank, I think you're unmuted. Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've had a few ideas on, on, on helping to, to bring uh, right and left people together. And, and I would like to have a show or see someone else do it. Um, so I, I'm having trouble doing it myself, but, um, having some, some right wingers on with some, you know, some 
some of us left-wingers on a show. We can't say anything about isms, can't say any isms, can't say socialism, capitalism. Just just talk about how to fix the issues we have. And I I think it would be a uh, my guess is would there's a to find out that we have really have a lot in common on and and uh, on how to fix these issues, but I think you know the, some of the propaganda has been put down about isms <laughs> that you know it, it just is an instant blockade, um, so conversations don't happen. But if we say we d- can't talk those isms and have a conversation with people that we supposedly have a differences, I, I think we'll find a lot of unity. That's a good point, Frank. I would love to do that. I would love to do a panel to have that happen. It's really hard for me to get people from the right to come on. I've tried this before in the past. Uh, you know, yeah. as soon as they, they see like, uh, you know, they, they, they see is this is a person who was for Bernie and I don't know and da 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 or they only want to go into conservative shows. You know, I can try again. Um, but yeah, I definitely would like to see that conversation happen. That's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Yeah, there's a lot of um, cop auditors um, that are rather right wing, but uh, they they're they're doing what we we would do with calling out police brutality. So it's it's sort of um, um, and just talking about them, uh, you know, about economic issues. I, I have a lot, of, I have a lot of cop auditor friends here in Denver that, um, uh, are right wing. Um, and most of the cop auditors across the country are actually right wing, but, uh, and, um, and they're, they're all, they're working class too. So, um, I'm, I'm hoping we could find somebody and, you know, find people to do that. Um, yeah, I, 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 I have I have some other other stuff I'd um, especially on pro- the professional managerial class, but I'll save that for later, and I'll I'll be sending you some emails on that soon. Awesome, sounds good. Thank you so much for calling, Frank. I'm going to bring in Delthea. You are on the mic. Can you hear me now? Yep. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, we're good then. All right, I'm going to make this short and sweet. You can reach across to people. I'm going to give you four things to keep in mind. The first thing is this. Be polite. Don't say anything to the person across the aisle that you wouldn't say to your grandmother. And if that's not working for you, don't say anything to that person across the aisle you wouldn't say to my grandmother. My grandmother taught charm and etiquette, and she also kept a basket full of switches next to her chair. She was a very interesting woman. Number two, find something you agree with that person about. It doesn't have to be politics. Matter of fact, it's better if it's not. I live in North Carolina. I'm a Tar Heel fan. I went to UNC. I walk into somebody's yard when I'm canvassing. I see a Tar Heel flag. I'm going to talk 10 minutes before I even mention the candidate I'm trying to canvass for. If I walk into their yard and they got that D-O-O-K flag up there, then I will say something like, you have a beautiful yard, an ugly flag. 
but we understand the rivalry, so we can still talk 10 minutes and still be on each other's good side, okay? That's what you do. The third thing that you have to do after you found something in common is don't talk about personalities. Talk about issues. Talk about the high price of gas. Talk about the needless slaughter of war. Talk about things that are going on, but don't mention personalities. This ain't about Trump. This ain't about Biden. This is about bread and butter, meat issues, okay? This is where you want to start, and you stay there until you can move forward, until you feel comfortable moving on to something else. And the fourth thing, and this is probably the most important, this is a long walk you are starting here. Okay, you can't turn people around in a day. I know I untried. I've been on this planet 56 years. I ain't seen it happen yet. But it's a walk where the path will not always be clear, but you got to keep walking. Look, I turned a man around who had a Confederate flag on the front of his truck and two Confederate stickers on his bumper. And after six months of seeing me at the local corner store, two and three times a week, he had taken those stickers off the back. Never did take the flag off the front, but he took the, th the stickers off the back and he had nothing but Obama stickers going across. That was back in 2008. It can be done, but you gotta be polite. You gotta have something in common with the person. You cannot make it about personalities, and you got to be in it for the long haul. You remember those four things, that'll get you started. If you need to see it actually work, check me out on my Facebook page every now and then. I'm over there working magic all the time. Thank y'all, and have a blessed night. Thank you so much for that, Delthea. Words of wisdom. And I totally understand that Tar Hill and Duke rivalry. I went to high school in North Carolina, and it is for real, I can tell you guys, but definitely great uh, suggestions there, Delthea, especially the part about not focusing on personalities and being polite to people. If you can't, don't do a Hillary. Don't call the other side deplorables. You can't call people names and expect them to actually hear what you're saying and be willing to listen to you. Um, so thank you so much for that. All right, I'm bringing in Ashura. You are the next caller. Hey, Sabi. Hello. Hello. Um, well, I'm going to start the video with one thing. Um, uh, Brenda V was in the chat. They told me that um, Ryan Graham came out on the show on the on the, the majority shitty shitty report, and um, I I saw the thumbnail, but I didn't go inside the video. And Brenda tells me that they they're blaming Jimmy Dore for basically. <laughs> Dems not codifying Roe v. Wade or for force to vote. It's all Jimmy Dore's fault. What? They <laughs> I've heard it all now. I saw that too. That, I saw that too. That was wild. I was like, really? It's. A, I didn't see the video because I don't want to watch their fucking video because I know it's going to be some bullshit. It's going to be completely opposite what Jimmy Dore said. And they and she said like they blame Jimmy Dore for basically the left not winning. It's like when Nina Turner was running and I think Steph was reading a super chat 
And she read a super chat, and TYT used that as some a, a smear attack attack dog piece on um Jimmy Dore when they said the entire crew was attacking uh, Nina Turner, even though she was reading a super chat. And it felt like like that. And it was like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Jimmy Dore doesn't have enough power to basically sway the election on Nina Turner in Ohio. Like, you don't think that most of Jimmy Dore's uh, sub don't live in other countries they don't spread around the, the, the united states how do you think that he has you think he has like a million followers in ohio like does jimmy door control the state of ohio <laughs> can i just you know i talked to a couple of people that live in nina turner's district and what they explained to me is that she wasn't going to win in that district because of the ideology that people in that district have this apparently is not like a working class district. And uh, it's supposed to be like upper, like middle class, upper middle class, like area. Uh, you also have a wealthy, you know, section in it. So there was already going to be people who were going to vote against her because of the fact she came from the Bernie Sanders campaign. And some of those people blame her and Bernie for the reason why someone like Trump won. So. She was never going to win. This is what I was told by people who live in her district, that she was never going to win that district. And one of them actually said that they felt that she should have ran as an independent. But I think there's something about Ohio uh, primaries or something like that. I, I think you can't run as, as one or whatever. They have weird rules. But, um, you know, you can't change your message. Because all of a sudden I'm in a district that may not approve with the message that came from Bernie Sanders platform. Then people kind of see you as not credible. People see you as a and they're like, OK, well, she's talking about access to health care instead of Medicare for all. <laughs> like people see what you're doing. This that's not Jimmy Dore's fault. You know, people like Majority Report and TYT, they have to have someone else to blame. You know, they're they're no better than than uh, Congress right now. They're really not. They have to have their Kirsten Cinema and their Joe Manchin to point fingers at. And for them, that person is Jimmy Dore. Isn't that a damn shame? Yeah, because, um, well, oh, go ahead. Um, somebody was going to say something. Oh, I think that was just me sighing. Sorry. Okay. Um, because uh, somebody was in a chat and they were saying, the, I think her name was Jean the Great, Jean Catherine the Great, or whatever the name was. And that person was saying that uh, he watches uh, Sam Cedar. He says Sam Cedar is a socialist, he's a communist, uh, he, 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 he's, uh, he's not pro Democrat. I'm like, what the fuck is this? He's not pro Democrat, he's a socialist, he's a communist. Like, which Sam Cedar are you talking about? It's like, are we living in alternate reality? Did somebody fucking snap their fingers with some infinity stone and I'm and I'm basically not living in the same world as this guy? Sam, Sam Cedar basically kicked out definitely not uh, J Jamie, Jamie Peck, I believe, who was a communist on his show, kicked her off and basically trashed her for being a communist. Him and Matt, Matt Leach. Yeah, I and all of a sudden. All of a sudden, basically, uh, he's a communist, he's a socialist. He's not that. Like, these liberals, they will take whatever word that's popular and say, I'm that person, just to get people coming in so they can basically brainwash them 
and make them think that oh th- these are these they are these people like th- this is Sam C that told uh, he told uh, Jackson Hinkle I don't care if the military budget gets blown blown is it the military budget or the police budget like if it gets blown up blown blow, blow up blow the fuck up I don't care. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's just, it's really, you know, you know what's really sad? We have to worry about mainstream media propaganda, but now it's like you have to worry about propaganda from so-called independent left media now too, because they've kind of coalesced with uh, mainstream media now with their talking points. And, yeah. they all told, and they all told on themselves with forced to vote. Every yep. single one of them told on themselves and they, they've, they've stayed true to that to this point. Because because there's there's like a clip um I think I saw it like um on some random channel small channel and it basically has Jimmy Dore basically screaming in in, in the on, on the screen telling Jane Huger this is about forced to vote this is bigger than me this is bigger than you I will even give you the reins of the movement if you want to take it because you can't be in a pandemic and you have no health care. No one wants to provide any health care during a pandemic where you got this virus going around. And people will say, well, say, oh, it's Jimmy Dore's fault that you didn't get universal basic <laughs> health care in this country. I'm like, Jimmy Dore's not president yet. Like, how is it his fault? <laughs> well, I think it's really funny because they didn't seem to think Jimmy Dore was a problem when he when they were on his show. You know, some of these people that are smearing Jimmy Dore now, not to get off topic, but some of these people that are smearing Jimmy Dore now, they had no problem with being on Jimmy Dore's show all those years. Mm, like who? I, I know Jane Huger was on, like Jane Huger, but I don't know anybody else. Oh, oh yeah, Ryan Grimm. Ryan Grimm. Multiple people, Jimmy Dore platformed. Multiple people who are big now. And I, I think, you know, that's something people need to kind of think about. Like, so what is it really about? What's the real issue here? Because I, I think when I look back on Force to Vote, it was very clear to me that TYT and Majority Report did not want to hold these politicians accountable. That's the thing. They don't want to actually hold them accountable. So what's the point? They didn't want to lose access to them. Exactly. There's a reason why. Come on. There's a reason why you don't see these politicians come on shows like RBN. Because I find it weird. I find it weird that even after the anniversary of, of Force to Vote, because Jimmy and Jackson did a video and Team YT was mocking them. They were saying, oh, Force to Vote, whether hey, they like Force to Vote didn't do anything. I'm like, really? You think that it didn't do anything? You didn't think there was like some indirect result from Force to Vote? Basically, showed you that the left itself is is splintered into two groups. You got the neoliberal sheep and the actual people who want to fight, and it's just a small group of people who want to fight, who has who basically want to go out there and just fight for basically things that they need. And the other side just want to say, "I'm not we're not we're not, not going to fight for that shit. We're just going to go back to brunch." Uh, the Democrats are in power now. They're they're comfortable. This space for a long time has been, you know, ran by wealthy white people who don't know what it's like to be working class, didn't grow up that way. A lot of them went to private schools and they come from elite families. Like, I didn't know that back then when I was watching them. Once I got into the space and I realized like where they really came from, I'm like, no wonder they have the talking points they have. They don't know what it's like to be working class. Like, so 
that's something that you have to keep in mind. Like they're just worried about their pocketbook. Anytime they would sit up there and tell you, you're not supposed to hold them accountable. That is BS. When I watched that debate between Sam Cedar and Jackson Hinkle, it was very clear to me. They are never, never going to hold them accountable. And come November, they are still going to tell you to vote for them. They're still going to tell you to basically just walk away with your tail between your legs and just deal with it because that's the best that we supposedly have. They're not going to push you to fight for anything better because that doesn't make them comfortable. They do what makes them comfortable. And meanwhile, the rest of us, we're the ones that are struggling. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. My question also for Aaron, um, you said you're still running on the banner of, of MPP, but not, not under Nick Brana, but under another banner. Can't you just tweak it? Because Nick Brana seems like a guy who would technically, he, he's a weasel. He would probably use what, any other win that you might get and basically say it's because of his party. So can't you tweak the name in a sense? It's a great, it's a great question. Uh, this is what I'll say just to keep this short because I know people are waiting. Um, he doesn't own the name People's Party. That's one. Pe- there's People's Party existed well before the movement for People's Party, like historically. Second, um, we are registered and uh, we are recognized by the State Board of Elections. So, I mean, we own it. That's, that's It's ours. Uh, furthermore, even when we were with MPP, they didn't do almost anything. Like, uh, if I'm being fair, Nick Brana did one thing to help me out. And that was, I reached out to him and be like, and just to let him know, Hey, Jimmy Dore is coming to North Carolina. We're setting up tables to do an event, get let people know that we're going to be recruiting and and all that. Can you let Jimmy know that we're going to be doing that? And he did that for us. So I have to give him credit for doing that. Aside from that, literally nothing. We did everything. We set everything up. We set up everything that needed to be done. We got incorporated. We got registered with the with with the um, state, and um, and Mark my and uh, Mark's on here too. This they deal with the same thing in Washington. He's over there, uh, the Washington People's Party. Um, we're basically going to be doing. The goal is to do what MPP said they would they were going to do. So on the state level. Uh, we are still building parties and we'll, we'll still be working together with other states doing it. New Jersey does is doing something, Texas, other states. It's not just North Carolina. So basically we can still do what, you know, what the promise was from the beginning, but we're, we're doing it on our own. And um, so, I mean, I know that the name thing uh, ties people up. I feel like, you said it yourself. You said it earlier. You said people keep co-opting. They co-opted progressive. They, they co-op socialist. They co-op. They co-op everything. If we keep letting people co-op things, there's going to be nothing left. So we just decided. We we made a decision. We're not going to let them co-op this. We're going to fight for this. We started on this with this, and we're going to keep it. And and basically, people who think we're associated with them or something else, we're just going to prove to them with our actions what we're, what we're about. And so as a party, we have a 527, but uh, we have also formed a nonprofit side by side with it, which is a 501C. And essentially everything we can't do as a party, we're doing as a pressure group and as a, you know, basically a direct action group called the Populist Action of North Carolina. So we're doing both. Um, And I think it's important to do both because if you only focus on electoral politics, you lose the plot, I think. So, Okay. Uh, that's, my, that's my opinion on that. Because that was um, 
I was speaking with Zanab in the chat, and she said, like, basically most people on the board are basically Democrats. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And uh, my my last my, my question my last question is uh, uh, you can't well if he doesn't want to resign because he keeps using the excuse that he wants the board to kick him out like why can't he take the high road I'm gonna let and just do it himself I'm gonna let you talk on that <laughs> yeah let's let Zineb talk and then after this is sure I want to make sure I get Eric on the call okay. Uh oh, Zineb dropped off. That happens sometimes oh, no. when people go to hit the okay, button. Well, it's, since he's dropped off, okay, just talk about. Basically, the quick answer is him and his dad are running that. They have a lawyer that's in there uh, helping them make decisions, um, and they hold a lot of power. Um, oh, Mark's up here. Let Mark talk about this because he knows it better than me. So, okay. Mark, um, you just I'll, have to I'll, um, I'll, I'll let Mark speak afterwards, but I'm just going to say one more question, and Mark can speak afterwards. Um, the thing that's going on with Nomiki and the Congre- the woman that's running for Congress, like, um, do you think Sam this will divide uh, the people at um, the, the the majority report? Or do you think because, um, absolutely? Because Sam Cedar said he's backing Nomiki, and Emma Vigilance said she's backing. Kristen Gonzalez. She's yeah. Even the yeah. Even the Matt Leach guy says the same way. So I, it seems like it's gonna probably be eighty twenty split. But would that be enough to have a uh, what was it called? What was that guy called? The what the family member, the person that the AOC beat. Do you think that'd be enough for him to just squeeze by and just win and play, they can blame Nomiki? It could because um. It could, because here's the thing, like, it's really kind of embarrassing to see two progressive candidates fighting against each other like this, especially on social media. And like I said, Kristen Gonzalez had the backing of DSA and of AOC. And then here comes Nomiki and she just jumps her hat into the race. So, yeah, it's definitely going to the DSA people nine times out of 10 are going to go with uh, Kristen Gonzalez. Some people may tap out and say, listen. Both of them are fighting with each other. I don't want any of this. So I'm just not even going to participate. So it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I'm sorry if it does divide <laughs> report audience. This is all Nomiki's fault. She put them in that situation when she decided to surprise them with that announcement. Oh, okay. All righty. Okay, let's go ahead and get um, Eric. I'm going to bring you in, but just hold on for a second. I want to give Mark and Zineb, whichever one of you want to go first, a chance to answer that question uh, that Ashura asked about um, not stepping down. Um, I was, as far as the not stepping down, you know, um, they're... I, I think the problem with the People's Party, what's gone on with them and, and the challenge that I had since going there, you know, outside of everything else that I went through on the emotional level and the physical level and that sort of thing. But one of the problems is that when you start an organization, sometimes there's blind loyalty, just like the Democrats, just like we're talking about Nomiki. We're talking because, you know, an example is when me and Eva Pitsova called out AOC on giving money to Democrats, to corporate Democrats, 
um, Nomiki messaged me privately and she said, um, she said, you're dividing the left, you're tearing down the left. So she had loyalty to Alex over everything Alex had said and promised the entire time. Sometimes when we really believe in something or we join something or we do something, this happens all the time in religions and cults in, you know, things that people support, um, they can ignore corruption. They can ignore authoritarianism. They can, you know, do whatever they can do to maintain like the power they there were people on the board i i know of like several people that worked directly for the dnc they were a lot of people that were bernie um surrogates um that worked within the democratic party there were people that were uh, i mean nick worked directly i have never they're saying that i worked but i never worked for the democrats i have never and i've never supported the democrats been speaking out against them for seven years and anyone that knows me or has been following my emails or anything like that knows that i ain't been a friend of them and they don't like me but when you are building something there's solidarity with the workers there's solidarity with people and then there's um a loyalty to an organization door. For instance, I love that Jimmy was the first person that I would reach out to, to book all these candidates on when I was working for brand new Congress to get them on like Corey Bush and AOC and stuff. And I was proud of him when he stood up and he held AOC accountable and forced the vote. I was trying to say that we needed to drop her off our slate at BNC. Um, but people didn't like that there because they're like, she's now a representative. We have to be loyal to our representatives. Well, accountability was built in at brand new Congress. That's what I joined for. We were supposed to hold them accountable or else the whole idea of it doesn't even work. It's pointless. So there has to be accountability in all of our spaces. There has to be. We can't think of it as tearing, quote unquote, tearing it down, because when we lack accountability, we're tearing it down ourselves. And all the people there, I'm from poverty. I grew up in a damn trailer park. You know, I'm from Appalachia on the talking to poor people and stuff. I can comment on that later because I've talked to thousands of voters that were conservative that agreed we need universal health care. We need tuition free college. It's all in how you frame it. But um, you can't have you can't have unwavering loyalty to the point that you're not holding your institutions accountable. If we're doing that, then we're just building more of the same. Um and we also have to watch out for in our spaces of them being co-opted by people from wealth or them being established by people from wealth that are disconnected from the working people. And you can hear that they're disconnected at times if you really sit down and listen. Um, no Mickey's disconnected. Sam Cedar's disconnected. A lot of people are disconnected who actually have a platform. RBN, that's why I listen to them. That's why I listen to Savvy. That's why I listen to Kim Brown. Burn it down with Kim Brown. Because these people are the poor. They're people that have come from lower means. They're people that aren't from generational poverty. So they're not doing, you know, gymnastics just to, you know, somehow not make rich people feel bad, right? Um, the more that we have of that, and then we call that solidarity, that ain't class solidarity. That is, um, that's upholding the establishments that have upheld our oppression for years. Sorry, that was a ramble. I just had a Red Bull. <laughs> No worries. Uh, Eric, let's go ahead and get you in. You just have to unmute. Oh, hey. Um, yeah, so about about class lines, right? So um, so it's, it's definitely important that we unite on class lines and the basic thing is just 
obviously get past left and right and focus on issues, but then, like I said, that comes with standards. I mean, obviously avoid culture war, BS, yada, yada, yada. And I guess the biggest thing is just, it's not just about what you're doing now, but it's also about the example that you're setting that will move beyond you. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that um, if we just, when we're talking to people, if we focus on the economic issues and not focusing on like who you voted for, what do you identify as politically? Like, I don't, you know, you know, I don't want to hear whether or not someone's a Republican, a Democrat, or whatever, if I'm talking to them about high gas prices, if I'm talking to them about high grocery store prices, I want to hear about the economic situation that they're dealing with. And I think if we keep it to that, I think that's one of the ways that we can like bridge that that divide. But I think Delia had a point when she said that if you start with the isms, that's when you're going to lose people. If you say, oh, socialism or da da da. I watched Rome do this. Rome is really good at this, you guys. When Rome came to Boston and we did tour for the poor here, Rome was talking to people who were conservative. He convinced a conservative guy to come out to the event when we were giving out pizza and clothes and stuff like that. He convinced him to come out. And I was just like, okay, yeah, you know, he probably won't come. You guys know how some people say they're going to show up and they don't show up. But he, he came. He came and he agreed with what Rome was saying. So I highly recommend that you guys, like, if you have not done so, pay attention to what Rome is doing. Like on his Twitter page, in reference to mutual aid, all the stuff that he's doing, like Rome will talk to anyone. And he is really good at making the connection about issues and he leaves like the whole you know conservative or democrat thing out of it and he's really good at getting people to listen yeah and and I definitely commend Rome for that um, it's really about and also with that too a lot of it is speaking from your own life experience as well and it's just like, especially, especially teaching, especially as a teacher, you know, like um, sometimes talking talking to my students, see like whether it's through this baby formula shortage nonsense or it's through, um, you know, some some students are having it rough in their own households. It, it's just. We're eventually handing the reins over to our to our students, to our kids. It's just like they're looking at adults fight over bullshit left, right. And these kids are bright enough to see, um, y'all idiot adults, this is affecting everybody. The fuck are you doing? Like these these kids are not dumb now. They probably won't use those exact words, but they're not idiots. Yeah, it's it's a hundred percent true. Um, you know, the law versus right isn't going to put food on the table for your kids. And I, I will say, I saw an ad recently. I'm not going to lie, half the first half of it's kind of funny. 
But there is a actual a Republican candidate who's running for this. Yeah, Congress. Uh, where do they live in Florida? They're in Florida. They're in that Miami area. I think that's Jen Perlman's district. Now, I'm not going to lie. Like I said, the first part of the video is kind of funny just because of some of the stuff that she says. But then you get to the second part of the video and you see she's doing the same thing that we're doing over to RBN. She's feeding and clothing people in her community. You know what I said? I said, you know what? And it's a black woman. I said, even though she's conservative, you know what? She can win because she's actually helping people in her community. That's the difference. That's the thing. When people see that you actually trying to help them, and she's been doing this for years. She didn't start doing this because she wanted to run for office. She was already helping the people in the community, and then she decided to run. That's what we need to be doing. You got to help people first. You can't go run, give me your vote, and then I'll help you. You have to help people first. But thank you so much. For that Can era. I add something to that really quick? Yeah. Um, just to someone from Appalachia, um, the what the conservatives do here is they have barbecues. They do exactly what Rome um, and uh, Nick were doing, you know, up there um, this this weekend. They do that here, and I think that there's this liberal coastal elitist idea of how to talk to poor people, and the conservatives know better. And the liberal coastal elitist keeps saying that in order to reach poor people, we got to ignore social issues. We can't talk about cultural issues. Well, I tell you what, I'm from Kentucky, and most of us don't give a damn about that, you know, and uh, we don't care. And a lot of women support women's issues here. A lot of conservative women didn't vote for Trump this time around because of the way that he treated women. These issues are still important along the lines of the class issues because these issues have been oppressing us in Appalachia forever. These cultural stereotypes and discrimination, we've seen it. We've seen it among the black community. We've seen it among how they treat poor Appalachians, right? So those cultural issues, that's not the dividing part. The dividing part is the fact that the conservatives are coming down here from the churches, building up, they're doing the barbecues. They're doing the on-the-ground mutual aid work. People don't realize that from the coastal cities. That that's why these conservatives are winning is because they're actually doing things on the ground. Now, their policies overall are horrible, but they're smart about that aspect. They'll come down, they'll do the work, and then they'll get voted on. Then they won't do nothing in Congress. But they, they do do the work sometimes, and that's why conservatives are heard. And uh, it, it's a winning strategy. Did you guys hear that? One thing I can tell you, like when I lived in the South, I went to, I've gone to an all black church and I got, I went to a multicultural non-denominational church. They kill me with these names. But one of the things I did notice is that especially down South, they call them conservative, whatever. Most of the people in the church, in the multicultural church, most of them were conservative. But you know what they were doing? They were helping people in the community. They were doing food drives. They were doing clothing drives. They were actually out there helping the people. So I think we 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 have to get back to that. Like you have to like look, Nick and Rome aren't running for office. They're just helping people because they want to help people. But I think Case Study had the right idea when he said you need to do mutual aid and the candidate comes out of the mutual aid organization. 
That's how you do it. And they can't run through Democrat or Republican because see this way, even if they lose, the people still get something. Exactly. Go ahead, Mark. Thank you. I don't think I've talked to you before, but I love listening to your show. Uh, so I thank you for making me a speaker. Aaron, so good to talk to you again. Uh, Zaina as well. Nice to, nice to, to be on with you. Um, I want to just address MPP really quick. Uh, uh, you know, and, and to, to say to Aaron and I guess announce to others who, who I've organized with in the past, who, who may not know, uh, as of last week, the People's Party of Washington has officially dissolved. Uh, you know, we lost most of our volunteers. Uh, you know, once it became obvious that MPP was a grift, we had a lot of people we tried. We started organizing the United People's Assembly. Uh, we had a lot of people tried really hard to build a national organization and the United People's Assembly is still going, incidentally. Uh, but within our party, we had a really hard, that same schism Aaron had to deal with in North Carolina about whether to keep the name or not. We also had a pretty hard uh, progressive versus populism schism about what our party should uh, address and cover. Um, and uh, and we only lost most of our volunteers over that. And, and the final straw was was uh, the, the sexual assault and abuse uh, allegations and uh, and MPP so visibly finally falling apart. Uh, uh, sort of drove away the rest of our working volunteers. So that's that's sad news for those of you who are listening. Uh, but to get back to Eric's point and the original topic, um, I wanted to say that I really do think we can organize around class uh, uh, versus ideology, right? Um, I think it's critical. I think I heard it on RBN, like that we need to have solidarity over class rather than solidarity over ideology. I think a lot of the problem that not just the left, I think third parties writ large, a lot of the problem has been they are trying to recreate a platform that looks like the Democrat and the Republicans platform. And those organizations are actually the combination of multiple parties over hundreds of years of negotiating, right? None of us have that sort of an organization, whether you're a minor party on the right, the left, in the center, independent, none of us have that organization, right? And so, and one thing I learned with MPP and with a lot of the organizing I've done is everybody wants to be heard about what they think the solution to the problem is. So it strikes me, I guess, that that the problem that a lot of these small parties have is they are trying to define a small group of people is trying to define what is good for the larger. They're trying to define that platform first. So I think that if we're going to build a real working class party, a party that can have us organize around solidarity of class rather than ideology, it means that we need to like engage a true populist principle. Because true populism, regardless of the fact that the, the owner class has like uh, demonized it uh, from the beginning and that fascists so frequently will co-opt it when uh, uh, so they have someone to blame when the owner class squeezes the working class and makes resources tight. Right. Regardless of that, true populism is is policies that is for and wanted by most of the people. Right. And that is inherently leftist because it's anti-corporate. It's pro-people. So 
So if we organize around a populist, uh, 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 a populist ideology, I suppose, of um, listen to the people, right? Listen to the people. No corporate money, no corporate policies, no compromise on the people's issues. I think if we organize, real party building happens locally. Real party building happens in the states. I hope I'm still on. You are, Mark. I just mute myself because I get like a, a background noise over here. Great. My, my phone, my phone blacked out. I was suddenly worried. You know, real party building happens locally. It happens in the states, uh, and, and smaller at times. So, you know, a real populist party, a true populist party, a working class party would ask the people, what is the problem you see? And what is the solution you see? We wouldn't have lobbyists writing policies and it would be electing people starting at the local level, city council, school board, hospital district, Electing people at the local level that would be developing the delivering the most benefit for the most people. And then as you get to the state level, it should be asking the people, what, what laws do we have to pass in this state? And they would fight single mindedly. And at the federal level, once we can actually have enough state parties together that they can form a real national party, again, a populist platform where the people write the policies and then we vote on them. And we say the top three, the top three, they get 86%. Universal health care, universal education, universal living wage. And, and we say that if you want our votes, we're not going to compromise. We're not Democrats. You want our votes. Your policy better have one of our people's top three priorities in it, period. You want the military budget? Here's your, is it going to include universal health care? Is it going to include universal living wage? Is it going to include universal education? No. Okay. Then no, we don't give you, you don't get our vote. Period. Hardcore solidarity for the people. They, our elected representatives should represent the solidarity of the people. Sorry. That was my answer to Eric. That was also the thing I called in about initially. So I am done. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Mark. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that, Mark. Um, and, you know, I was, I know I told a few people I was thinking about running for office myself locally. And I kind of, I guess I kind of took the approach, like, it, kind of my thinking was, like, I'm not doing it for me. I'm like, personally, I was, personally, I was thinking along the lines of building a building the the structure would be like to my students here take this y'all should be the ones doing this shit anyway but yeah but yeah at the end of the day it's got to be a ground a direct action groundswell and like i said my students see are seeing the reality it's just you got adults <laughs> It just it, it needs to start with us, and then pass it down the line. And so I we hear have, you. yeah, we have an actual so we can have an actual ecosystem of this going on, and and yeah, that's right. I mean, I think listen, you know, um, Eric, thanks so much for calling in. I want to go ahead and grab uh, Brian um, uh, next. Uh, 
But I do want to say this really quick. You know, I think MLK actually had the right idea because, like I said, the civil rights movement, that was just the beginning. After that, he also wanted to do a universal basic income. He also wanted to unite the workers. He also wanted to give black people reparations for slavery. Like he focused on the social issues first. Let's get everybody on equal standing here. Let's get black people to have access to the same facilities as white people. Then we're going to go focus on the economic issues. So what we saw, what we read about in history with the civil rights movement, that was just the beginning. He was also had a whole plan for the economics you know, issue in the United States. And like economically, things are worse now than they were back then. So what does that tell you? You know, Brian, I want to go ahead and bring you in. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll try not to get myself in too much trouble here, but I can provide some context to the whole Namiki thing. Um, I donated to her public advocate campaign back when, and she actually personally called me a couple times to try to get donations for this one. I, and every time I've kind of told her I'd think about it and I haven't, uh, for the record, but, um, but I did ask her directly about, <laughs> um, this splitting the vote issue and things like that. Um, and you know, her, her position is that she claims people in the district, I'm not from the district, but from New York, uh, that they asked her to, to jump in and uh and whatnot and i even i i had her send me a forum that all five of the candidates are on so i could hear everybody talking before i decided to do one thing or another and you know my my problem with her in it is i feel like she's too much of a pundit <laughs> you know she's too used to you know whatever that youtube show she's on and and then she's whatever on msn or cnn or whatever she does there and like it's like that's not it's not good politics of just bickering and shouting other over other people. And I feel like that's a lot of those, those, I don't twit or anything. So I don't, didn't know about any of that stuff. And I feel like that's a lot of that stuff was about was just having that argument, because if you're arguing enough, then that somehow makes you right. <laughs> and I just think that's, that is a bit toxic. And that's part of my problem. As far as the idea of, you know, I mean, her whole campaign is on, I'm from the area more so than all of the other people, including the, the white people. So I, you know, is there a racial component to that? I, you know, and is there an issue that I don't know necessarily, and it's possible, but I, that's just kind of her overall thing. And I agree her mentioning Crowley in a positive light is just, why would you do that? <laughs> that's pretty, pretty dumb. So uh, anyway, those are my thoughts on that. Um, I, and, and I, I kind of think, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that any of those candidates are that great. You know, even Gonzalez, like, okay, AOC endorsed her, but we all know AOC's compromised. I mean, she's been co-opted by the establishment too, you know, and uh, Gonzalez used to work for Schumer and things like that. So, you know, I, I don't know that she's super, I don't know that any of them are what we want <laughs> uh, is sort of my bottom line on, on that kind of idea. So I don't know. I think the whole thing's a mess. And to go to the actual topic that you want to talk about, uh, I, I mean, I think that's the whole problem is that there's the politics is a mess and we do need people to actually talk on the working class level and across class lines and more than that. I think that's super important. So I am just appreciative that you're all talking about that here, uh, and giving that a forum because that's really what we need. We, I think that's the, the way to push back against all of the tribalism is to just say, okay, let's forget about that. Let's just talk about, you know, what we all need. We we talk about all the time that, you know, if you pull, and I know some of your speakers have said this, 
you know, if you talk to people, they want universal health care. They want education. They want to end wars, things like that, that I think everybody here pretty much agrees on. And uh, I just think we need to touch on that level and go, yeah, okay, forget about the other stuff. <laughs> Let's just, this is the things we can agree on and we should move forward on that. And, and yes, yeah, stop looking for reasons to fight people and to put people in boxes and, 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 you know, find consensus and work on that. I mean, it seems like the obvious answer, but. Thank you so much for that. That uh, I almost called you Batman because your picture. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Brian. Um, well said. Yeah, I mean, I knew that people asked her to run, but my whole thing is, is like, you know, people have asked me to run too, and I say no. You know, yeah. I think that this this whole thing is a mess now. Um, I think it's ridiculous. I think she still needs to answer for some of the decisions that she made in reference to foreign policy, where she was physically at those locations. I think she needs to answer to that, but. You know, there's a lot of, I used to live in New York, uh, years ago. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of racism in New York, especially, you know, that district in particular. I remember more so Astoria. I remember what Astoria was like. Now that was years ago. Um, and I went back to Astoria to go to a brewery. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar. Single cut, single cut brewery. I'm, went, uh, I'm a Long Island guy, so I'm not quite that area. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. I went there to visit, um, years ago and to meet up with a friend there. But uh yeah, I mean, it just, these areas in New York, they have their, I don't even want to say that they're necessarily segregated per se, but there are certain areas in New York City that I knew back then, it was not a good idea for me to go to. And back then at that time, Astoria was one of them. Back then it was heavily a Greek neighborhood. And they weren't too nice to black people that came into it. So I don't know too much how it is today. Last time I was there was, I think, 2016 I was in Astoria. So, and I was just to go to that brewery, but yeah. yeah well, I and, mean, and to, your point, to your point, you know, her whole claim is, hey, I'm from, I'm from Astoria. <laughs> I've been here my whole life or whatever. So. You know, she was there when it was those that time you're talking about, I'm sure, you know, so um, I think yeah. that's more of a claim of what you're trying to say than anything else. <laughs> so, exactly. I was just trying to provide some context just because I, I actually spoke with her and I knew a little bit about the situation where I'm sure a lot of people didn't. And yeah, I agree. She's said a lot of questionable things and I know I can't defend that, but um but, but again, I, you know, I just think we need more. And again, I just why I, I do like your show. I, I, uh, when I do catch it is I do like that you're very focused on, uh, organizing and, uh, actual actions rather than just the, uh, uh, voting and, and whatnot. So, um, so, you know, keep up that good fight for sure. Uh, cause I think that's really what we need. And if we, if we had candidates saying, yeah, go get in the street and take some action. <laughs> and go to a protest, I would be more likely to trust that person than two people fighting on Twitter about, you know, who hates the other one the worst, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no. Thank you so much for calling in, Brian. Thank you. All right, John, I'm going to bring you in, and you just have to hit the unmute button. Jonathan. Okay. 
John, I, you I had to get to my, my phone to give the call-in app permission to use my speaker or whatever that was. So oh, dear. anyway, I get just uh, a few quick little things, and then I wanted to go on to sort of reinforce what uh, Delphia was saying earlier, which I really, really agreed with. Uh, first, I'm I'm actually uh, in in New Hampshire, so <laughs> and it was a shock to me. I moved here because my we had to when I retired because we had to take care of my wife's uh, mother, and that's where we were. But I moved here from Hawaii, which a lot of people just never understand is the state that has fewer <laughs> proportion of the population white people than any other any other state. It's only about thirty percent, perhaps. At, at most. So when I get here to New Hampshire, I'm looking around, I'm saying, my God, where'd all these Hollies come from? And Holly being the Hawaiian word for white people, it, it means ghost in Hawaiian. And they, they thought they were so, so pale. They must be ghosts apparently. So a- anyway, uh, I live in New Hampshire now and I'm actually in the same county as, uh, as uh, Bill Marsh, your, your, your guest today. And last census I looked at, in Carroll County, out of 47,000 people, there are only 12 people who weren't white, non-Hispanic. So it's, it's, yeah, pretty, it's pretty. That's, I'm, yeah, no, I was just going to say really quick, like New Hampshire is, uh, yeah. I mean, like, like I'm like having lived in North Carolina and South Carolina, like even in Massachusetts, there are, I'm used to seeing more black people having lived in the South. Like Aaron knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, so, I can vouch. <laughs> yeah, but even when you compare Massachusetts to New Hampshire, you definitely feel the difference <laughs> when you go into yeah, New it's Hampshire. Not, it's not quite as yeah, extreme in, in southern New Hampshire and Nashua and to a certain extent Manchester. But yes, <laughs> it it is it is a different, and it's funny when I moved out to Hawaii, I, I took a job at the University of Hawaii like almost 30 years ago, and we got a lot of these professors from the mainland who never lived anywhere where there was any diversity of people, and they were like, get off the plane, like, ah, where are all the white people? <laughs> it was it was pretty funny, but anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh about Bill Marsh's interview, one of the things he was being criticized a little bit from, you know, going from Republican to Democrat, what did, what did he gain? Well, actually, he's pissing the Democratic Party, the state party off quite a bit because he's talking well about some Republicans that he's worked with in the House. And, you know, I, I mentioned uh, before he, he passed a transgender rights bill and he got a lot of Republicans to sign off on it because he's just as personality that can work across the aisles and everything else. The other thing was he mentioned briefly in the interview how he had worked to keep uh, the hospital, which is Huggins Hospital, not profit. And I, I know I have accumulated because I'm old a bunch of chronic diseases and I have to go to the different hospitals in the area for different things. The ones who were privatized just absolutely treat me terrible now. They're just awful. But Huggins, which is still the not-for-profit that he worked very hard to keep it that way, are very nice. They're great to get medical care from. So I, I think he's really a socialist at heart, although he would never actually <laughs> admit that because how else could you fight capitalism and still 
you, and get, keep a not-for-profit instead of making it into a, a for-profit uh, a for-profit thing. Yep, thing I wanted to, like I said, expand on what Delphia said a little bit. Uh, when I lived in Hawaii, uh, Tulsi Gabbard was actually my uh, congressperson for for quite a while. She's an interesting case. She was the biggest homophobe and everything else back when she first was in the state legislature. But I think she's right. After she went over and served in a combat zone and had people having to back her up who were from a different, different everything, uh, it, it made a big difference. And I, I think she actually changed. But that's a lead. And when she came and ran in New Hampshire, I worked, uh, I worked for her and we did a lot of canvassing and one of the things I well, sort of knew intuitively from the canvassing, but we would go around canvassing. They, they liked us to go in pairs. And every time they'd see a, a Trump, you know, 2020 sign in someone's yard, they'd tell me not to go up. I said, no, no, no. We're an open primary state. Even if I can't convince them to vote for Tulsi in the general, I can convince them to vote for her in the primary. <laughs> and, and it, you know, it, it really worked. What I found, I never, ever, when I went up and told them, I didn't tell them who I was or who I was campaigning for. I would just start out with, well, what's really important for you? This seat, you know, what's a really important issue in your life? that you'd like to see something uh, done about. And actually back then in 2020, it wasn't even the economic issues that took the top thing. It was the fentanyl epidemic. And it's like everybody I talked to had some relative or somebody they knew or somebody else that had, you know, either overdosed or life was destroyed and, and everything else by that. And it, it was, it you know, Tulsi was smart. She went to a whole bunch of uh, substance rehab places when she was in New Hampshire and, and, and talked to everybody. But that's the thing that's really important. And actually, I did get a bunch of Trumpers to, to vote for Tulsi in the primary. So the important thing is to really start out by listening to what the other person has to say. Sooner or later, you'll be able to tie in what it's important to them, to what's important to you, and bring them along. But that's 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 the important thing is to listen to the other people and never pigeonhole them. So anyway, <laughs> oh, what else was I going to say? Yeah, my my uh, sister lives in uh, North Carolina in Durham, and her husband works for Duke, and her daughter went to UNC. So there you go. Oh, a divided household. Yeah, a, a divided house. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> that, the rivalry is real between like yeah. uh, UNC and Duke. It's it's brutal, man. You talk about college. It's going to be bad, but it's actually worse than I thought. It, <laughs> it's really bad. Absolutely. But Kentucky and Duke is pretty bad too. But that all has to do with that that uh, basketball game in 1993 when they did that three pointer yeah. in the last second shot. <laughs> So uh we we be uh we uh we don't like Duke around here very much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say for those who don't know, like I grew up on sports, like my dad played basketball, like even when he was in the military, he played basketball, he played baseball, and like I know so much about like God, my dad watched two things, sports and news. 
That's it, pretty much. And well, sometimes some comedy, like sitcoms, but sports and news was like a regular thing. So I grew up like I knew about like Kentucky basketball, Kentucky basketball, like back, like even back then, they were known for that. Uh, I knew about like Duke and, and UNC and like I grew up with all that stuff. So it's it's like a big deal. I'm going to go ahead and bring Michael in. You are on the mic. You just have to unmute. Just got to hit that unmute button. Okay, sorry, sorry. I, was, I pressed the wrong area. I apologize. I was trying to unmute. Uh, so, yeah, so thinking deeply about if we can overcome the class divide in this country and, you know, think about long-term and think about this very deeply and critically and what we're seeing in America. And and uh, I just want to let you know for your audience what I'm going to say. It might sound very controversial, but it's a fact and reality. I don't think that overcoming class divide by itself is going to is going to reduce racism, white supremacy, and other policies. Because if you go back in history, and you, we had to think about, we had to look at it from a from a slavery uh, context. Because before Black Americans came to America, and by the way, they're involuntary force to come here against their own will. They were wealthy. From I'm not saying either from Ghana or Uganda, but either of those countries had gold, so gold was their main wealth. But until the Europeans set, until the Europeans were very poor, or like in miserable conditions in their own in their own country, and what they saw when they saw that Africans were very wealthy, they had established communities, established families, established culture, language, beliefs. They decided that how can we get wealthy just like Africans, extract their wealth, force them to come to America against their own will and make them work cotton where women did domestic work and men, I'm sorry, men pick up cotton and women did domestic work. And so they really separated, you know, based on race and of course, you know, wealth. And, and then when, and then when the next European, when the Europeans came over by the Homestead Act was meant, was initially meant to benefit, uh, um, excuse me, Africans to develop wealth, own land. No, they only own land for, they only own land or probably for like, I think it was like one week on a lease. And then when the Europeans came, Europeans came over, they just took everything away from black Americans and then left black America worse. I left, I mean, African Americans worse than they were 400 years. So even if we, even if we close the class gap between blacks and, and white Americans, White people are still going to have more intergenerational wealth than Black Americans, and according to economists uh, from uh, William Darity, if I'm sure some of you guys are familiar, he's a Duke economist. He said by year by 2030 or 2040, the Black wealth is going to become zero, and for white wealth, it's going to be more than like it's going to be more than six figure. So if you only dress class but not dressing real, uh, racial wealth inequality. It's going to make the gap even worse than it already is. Uh, that's one. And so that's why, that's why I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on universal policies to close the uh, class gap. But I'm saying both are needed. Universal policies such as Medicare for all, UBI, uh, reducing income security, and also, um, and also 
uh, cash reparations for ADOS. And I know some of your audience or some people say, oh, if you give black Americans reparations, oh, they're not going to help other people out. They're going to make white America worse. Studies have sold that if you give black people money, they're going to invest the money in the local economy or domestic economy because there's no way they can uh, they they can destroy the economy because they've been separated for over 400 years. They they had the wealth extracted. So when Black America benefits, the entire country benefits. Think about it. When Black America puts money in the economy, it creates jobs not only for not only for Black Americans but creates jobs for everybody. But I do understand why some white pe- why some uh, Mozungus or white people oppose reparations because now they're going to experience reverse discrimination from black employers. That's how black people experience, you know, discrimination from white people. So I definitely see, I could see the frustration, but, but I think that, you know, in regards to class gap, I mean, the class line, I'm sorry to go, to go off subject. I think that, that very few middle class people have realized that the clap, the class gap is getting worse and worse, but they have a majority of middle class Americans who have good, who have steady paychecks. They might have not have good health benefits, but they think that they, they definitely see themselves doing well. And what, uh, what the first caller said earlier is that just because you're doing well doesn't mean that your friends, your neighbors, your grandparents are doing well financially. It's because of a system, because the policy systems have to be created, uh, by the rich, by the rich, by the rich, I'm sorry, by the elites, uh, for over 400 years, especially cap, especially slaveryism. Slavery built capitalism, and so we need to tie this thinking that uh, that you know, like, because that um, how do I um, how do I put this? But we're now about trying to lean us. Like, think about like slavery. Like, I'll give I'll give you a concrete example to make it easy for people to understand. So, Brad's and Karens have good jobs. They know that because they're privileged. They're insulated uh, from you know from racism. I mean, sure, they experience classism, no doubt. But they have the privilege. Even if they, even they, even they were to lose a job, let's say tomorrow, they're still going to have intergenerational wealth. Sir, the wealth they're going to lose is quite a lot, but it's not going to be a lot compared to what black people have lost for over 400 years. And we had to tell the Mzungu class that look, this help, this system we have in this country is slavery. Think about it. So if a, if a, if a, if a Brad is thinking about Job security. I'm sorry, job insecurity, right? He's thinking about I need to make I need to make money. I can't think about others. We had to say to him or to like I mean people who fall in like who fall into upper class upper middle class and middle class like look, your employers don't care about you because you're property, you're commodity, right? Because when you want to quit your job, they can say to you, We need our health insurance back. You gotta pay back the premiums because we support you for over ten years working for us. So we had to use slavery as a way to change white people's mindset that it's not good. It's not good that, that your employers are withholding health insurance. So it's like how the white masters would withhold black people from eating if they didn't produce cotton or if black women did not, uh, did, did not, did not produce domestic work. You know what I mean? And so that's why if, if, like I said, in the chat or in my, in the chat comments, I mentioned earlier, I think what we need in this country is like this. And we need to say this to Democrats, right? Especially like no matter Democrats or moderates or progressives, we had to, what I tell them this, look, we, we support you. We support you. We have supported you for so long. 
And guess what? I, guess what he's done for us in the last 40 years? Nothing. And we had to make a bold but direct statement. You work for us. We don't work for you. And that's how Black America. That's how the Foundation Black Americans are telling Democrats. We gave all. We gave our our votes away to you guys, but you guys did nothing for us. But you helped others. So we had to make a very clear and bold statement. Now, if Democrats don't want to work with us, that's their prerogative. Then we don't have to work with them. We we just have to vote, you know, third party, like third party who shares our values. And we had to make a priority. Like, like the Green Party doesn't say lift all votes together because the Green Party understands that people are different. They have diverse experiences and different needs. And I say that in, in, in I say that we also need comprehensive uh, universal policies, but also I complement as well. So if a person doesn't want to go to college, that's fine, right? But he also needs to make a living wage. So we need as both tuition debt free public education and advanced vocational training. And for women, same here, women need money, regardless if they're gonna get abortion or not. So women who are pro life, they definitely need money for childcare because childcare and daycare they're very expensive. And whereas women who need to take women who need to take the time off to seek abortion, they need paid parental leave. In other words, they need money. And I think the key is money. People, yes, people are going to have different interests, different needs, but I think the key is money. Money is harming our thinking. It is preventing us from moving forward. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Michael. I, I just want to chime in here for just a second. Um, a couple of things. Uh, the first one is I, for one, have always said I support reparations, and I believe yes, I that, that. Yeah. you know, yeah, American descendants of slavery should receive reparations. Here's the problem that I've run into with some of those groups, though. Mm-hmm. Some of those groups, people like me, wouldn't mm-hmm. be accepted because of who I'm married to. Some of those groups, people like right. Afeni, people like Kamali, mm-hmm. who are, you know, definitely pro-black activists on the ground would not be accepted because they are technically first generation immigrants in this country. So I've had had these conversations. I've had people come on to my show and come on to RBN Mm -hmm. that were black nationalists Mm -hmm. and everything sound good in the beginning. And then we get to all these exclusions and then they want to exclude certain black people from the list. And I'm like, what the hell is this? I had a guy come on my show one time. Mm-hmm. He had great ideas. We need to right. all start working together and building our own like communities mm-hmm. and building right. our own like companies. I was totally on board. Then it mm-hmm. got towards the end and he said they wouldn't accept black people who were gay. I was like, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. Right, said, right, well, right. We're about, we're about uniting black people, you know, that 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 men and, and women, you know, mm-hmm. like men and women. I said, but if they're black, why does it matter if they're gay or straight? Because see, now that's kind of like a Republican talking point. Yes. And I was I mean, I understand what you're saying. I think I understand what you're saying. But if you go back, if you go back to uh, uh, what was it uh, before uh, this was uh, if you go back to during slavery, you, you do realize that black men and black women were separated. And I understand that black men were treated horrible by uh, white by the white male masters, female masters, especially white male masters who had who had raped you know black men uh, during you know growing cotton and how like I mean obviously all like white people white all white people but obviously majority in the past. So I kind of say why a lot of why the black community is very conservative or has an anti um, I'm sorry why is anti gay. I totally understand that you know based on the experience. But that's, 
But no, but no, no, Michael, that's mm-hmm. not where it comes from. It comes from Christianity. It right. comes from the black church because mm-hmm. the black church and as someone who grew up in it, the black church preaches to the African-American community that being gay is wrong. That's mm-hmm. where it comes from. That's the problem. Right. So right. If, if it's not it's not about because of what happened during slavery. It is about it directly comes from Christianity. And where did Christianity come from? It didn't come from Africa. You see what I'm saying? Right. So, I see, I see, right. I see, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. So you have some of those same groups that are black nationalist groups. Mm-hmm. They, right. they say they talk a good game, but mm-hmm. then they exclude black people who they feel do not fit their their requirement, their their criteria. You can't do that. Black right. people, what, 12%, 12%, 13% now of the yeah, population? Yes, 30% of the population. Yeah, that's right. We actually, we actually, it actually might be higher than that because the U.S. Census Bureau underreports, you know, underreports the tally. So actually, we might, we might be higher than 13%. But I do right. under, but You can't say, yes, we accept all black people except for black people who are LGBTQ. Except mm-hmm. for black people who are immigrants, except for black people who are first generation, second generation, you can't do that. Right, but uh, I would also, I would also, right, but I also add that, like, like, look, I, I know the, I know the reparations conversation is getting crazy, but all that is that. Look, it's going to be limits, limits based, right? Because those who've been here for so long are eligible for reparations, but it also means that black immigrants. Will benefit from reparations because think about it: when Black Americans or African descent slavery receive reparations, they're going to invest that money into the Black community. That means they're going to hire Black immigrants and Black LGBT. I know the LGBT is crazy. I agree with that. That uh, Black that Black people in general shouldn't have this very conservative stance on on uh, on LGBT. Uh, but I do, I do, I do, I do also understand that we need complementary policies because regardless if, if there's differences in the black community, black, but black people in this country, they're still treated the same according to Muzungus. You know what I mean? They don't, Muzungus don't care that if this black person is gay or not, right? He's going to care that, oh, this, this is a black person. You know, he's gay, but he, yeah, you know what I mean? So I do feel, I do think that, yes, that black, that, that some members of black nationalists have issues with people who are not like heterosexual, not straight, and I I do know that that one that uh some black that that some black people who make it to the top one percent of the I mean the top one percent will not benefit will actually not do a lot to help their own people out, and that's why that's uh, this is where I read a study that when black people rise above one percent, they actually being criticized for doing little to help their people rise above poverty. Because they're so focused on like the white mass, the white daddies, you know, the parents to be associated with the with the white wealth. So I do think that um, that white supremacy needs uh, needs to be uh, it needs to be eliminated for fact for sure, right? Also with like ext- like rugged capitalism, uh, individualism, and I, and and I'm gonna say this to I'm gonna say this publicly. If we don't, if we can't accomplish our you know our goals for achieving you know true income and wealth equality, universal health care. I think it's, there's, there's going to be a point in time moving forward that we're going to have to boycott America because I see America's falling very quickly. And I had to disagree with the caller that America's falling for slowly, falling slowly, but slowly, no, it's falling very quickly. Maybe people don't see it in their own eyes, but you could see like in the news, 
Essentially, Joe Biden's approval rating is dropping very quickly. A, a majority of progressives don't want don't want Joe. Uh, I'm sorry, don't want Jim Crow. Don't want uh, Joe Biden to run for a second term. Whereas 43 percent of Black Americans do want him to run. So I feel like once we see the pin, once we see the the pinnacle of America falling, or or or, or I said falling completely, that's when I think like it's time to boycott America for other countries. Like I don't care where they go. Like where it's like Africa, Asia. Europe, because a lot of a lot of international countries are laughing at us, criticizing us. How can we say? How can they criticize, you know, international countries when they don't practice human rights? But then they're criticizing us because we don't preach human rights either. You know what I mean? When has has this country actually ever appreciated human rights, though? Oh, never. It has never. It's just like a talk. It's just a talk. Exactly. America does a good job of talking the talk, but doesn't walk the walk on a human rights. So I definitely yes. So it has never been. But what someone said, uh, what someone said before, America is good at selling. You know, it's it's very good at how do I say marketing. And America's a woman. So when a lot of immigrants come to America, they think of America as like a woman. You know, a beautiful woman, blonde hair, blue eyes. But then they don't see the true. They don't see reality. I'm living for living here over time. Now, it's not what what it's meant, what, what what it's for. Because can I, can I jump in real quick? Sure. I just there's there's a lot there's some problematic stuff that um, I'm hearing, but I just wanted with regard to the reparations, like if people are really trying to push this through and be successful at it, I don't see the benefit in excluding. Like aside from the moral aspect of excluding people by based on conservative biases or what have you, just excluding people on the on the terms of. Uh, having less people fighting for your cause doesn't make any sense strategically. Second, putting a limit on the amount of money that like, so it's not like we're saying, I guess, I guess part of it is people don't, a lot of people don't understand where, okay, where's the money going to come from? And it's the same place that money's coming from to fund this like endless war machine machine mm-hmm. that we got going on we got billions of billions so it's a, it's a, i know when i talk to some people if you don't talk to them a lot of them be like oh well it's going to come out of my paycheck or it's coming out of my taxes uh, right not, I could, and, but hold up but hold up real quick so and i and i watched i watched that um show that sabi was talking about um where they were making those exclusions and sabi i saw it on her face she was like all on board and then all of a sudden it's like well hold up uh, that means i'm out you know i would be i would be out um, right, but, right, but you can't trade. But to but to say where the money's coming from, we can't pull reparations. But if you look at other groups, you look at the Jews, Japanese, Native Americans, now Ukrainians. They receive money from the government. That means cash payment. And so for Black Americans, they're saying, "But where's our where, where's where's our where's our cash payment? We built this country up for four hundred years. Count. They didn't receive nothing, and they had the wealth extracted and stolen. Whereas like the Jews, they didn't, and the Japanese, they didn't. I mean, not to say they didn't face the discrimination, they did, but they didn't face 400 years of discrimination, being killed, being murdered, being lynched. And so for black Americans, they deserve their fair share of the pot. They invested in everything. They invested in infrastructure, education, even when they built these institutions up. And by the way, they built these institutions for the white middle class. So black people definitely do deserve cash reparations. They deserve it. We have the money. We don't need to raise taxes. The money can come from is is from the yeah. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, I for sure uh, I believe in reparations and I think it should happen. But I, I'll I'll say this: like it, the messaging needs to be on point, it needs to come correct, and 
you can't disenfranchise people as you advocate for it because you just be shooting yourself in the foot doing so. So well, I, I understand, but you do right, right. But you do understand that when black people invest, when they receive reparations, invest in the economy, they're going to invest. When the black America benefits, the whole, whole America benefits. Yeah, they're going to be some black businesses who don't want to hire. Michael, I yeah. don't think I don't think we're disagreeing with you. Right, right. I know, I know. Right, right. What the point I want to make is. Mm-hmm. You can't complain about being excluded and and then turn around and exclude against your own people. Right, That's right. the problem. So mm-hmm. so the thing is the thing is is this. Yes, obviously I agree that black people should get reparations, but I don't think reparations should just be a paycheck. That's not actually going to fix the systemic issues. Reparations right. should be a check. It should also be you got to fix the public school system. You have to fix the health care system. You have to fix the criminal justice system. Otherwise, we'll end up right back where we were. Right. I understand. That's right. That's why I said that. That's why I said in addition to reparations, uh, the, 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 excuse, the legal system, a court system, it needs to be dismantled because of white supremacy racism that has been ingrained in America for over 400 years, including any qualified immunity against police who, who sued unarmed black people, uh, ending forfeit uh, seizures and searches, and other like other racist policies. That's why I say in a distance. Maybe I was not being very uh, clear. You're right. Repar- yes, reparations are necessary, but they're not sufficient. So I do agree on that, that everything needs to be included in addition to past payment and other like policies. But I do think that there's something, you, yes, that it's, you're going to have some people. Some black Americans want to create their own schools, which is fine. But then you're right that, that some black people want to feel included. So that, so it's going to be a multiracial. It's going to be a multiracial effort at the same time. But I do understand where both of you guys are coming from. But we also have to look at the bigger context. Right. I, I, we totally get that. But I don't yes. think it's fair to make the comparison with for black people with Jewish people. Because Jewish people, they were given reparations by Germany. Right, they were given by Germany, right. Right, but they weren't given reparations by the United States government. That's right, the right. difference. Yes, so, but, uh, right. And, but, but, you under, but you do understand, like, when black Americans win as Jews, how the Jews are so wealthy, right? Of course, they, of course because black Americans are going to feel that they built this country 400 years and counting after their hard work, but not a dime was given to them. And then they saw Jap- they win as Japanese people who've been here for not so long. We get, what, money? After being after being interned for like what several weeks, and so for for Black Americans they feel like it's unfair. They've been here for 100 years and su- and still continue suffering from the excuse me suffering the effects from post slavery. So to them it's not fair. But I do think that, like I said, I do think that that uh, fairness and quality are needed. But I do think that yes, that when yes when Black Americans receive a cash payment and when, when they do create jobs, yes. I do think that they need to be anti. I do think that discriminatory policies need to be eliminated when black business hire LGBT, like black LGBT individuals work. So yes, and I can tell you from experience, from my own experience, because like I said, I've tried this before. Mm-hmm. I didn't go down this road multiple times. The problem that we always run into are uh, black capitalists. Yes, black people who don't want anything to do with it. They don't care. Mm-hmm. They are class loyal first. Yes. So those people, like it's the LeBron James, it's the Oprah Winfrey's, like those people will always be in the way. And then you have to look back, you have to worry about the black boomers. 
Mm-hmm. They look at something like this and they're like, oh, you guys don't have to do all that because they got theirs. Right. They got you theirs see? and they're not, right. I see, right. And they got theirs and they're not willing to help out their own people. I get that. Because even like, even the, even the offer said, when black people join the 1%, right? They're, they're, they're going to be, they're, they're less likely to pull their people up, right? Because they're so focused on themselves, right? Things like they did, they worked very hard. They got a lot of white support. But the white, the premise is the white supremacy that's preventing the black 1% from giving back, right? Or even like, or even redistributing wealth to help their own people out. Because you're right, because of the capitalist, because of the capitalist system and also white supremacy. They both, they, they, they both, they both permit, I'm sorry, they both work well together. And that's the problem. Okay. Savvy, can I say something really quick here? I think that a lot of people are saying that if we get these blanket, you know, that was one argument they were having at MPP that a lot of our people of color that, and a lot of poor people were disagreeing with is the argument that, and you know, Nick Braun told me this himself. He said, well, you know, when it comes to domestic violence and women's issues, once we fix the economic problem, it's going to fix that. What? Once we, you know, address the economic issues, then, you know, that's going to suppress racism. But when the when the New Deal rolled out, we have a tremendous amount of lessons from that, because under the New Deal, that was supposed to benefit everybody. And we got a shit ton of generational wealth right now. I'm talking about upper middle class Americans that are upholding the oligarchy and and voting liberal so that they can maintain their privilege because they have property. They have houses that they're giving to their kids. They have, you know, um. But redlining during that time was illegal. Redlining has been illegal, but that didn't stop it. That didn't stop it because racism in our minds, sexism in our minds when it comes to paying women equally or or women getting jobs or having a having a friggin' seat at the table where they're not talked to like we're stupid. Mm-hmm. These cultural norms still exist. So just the legislation alone didn't fix that. It didn't end redlining. And now, right now, those in generational poverty, um, Appalachians were have always been discriminated against. We're just dumb, shoeless hicks, right? Um, those stereotypes are still impacting us to this day because the reason that they painted Appalachians is that because we we marched up Blair Mountain and we're raising hell with people from all across, with indigenous people, with black people, with with Asian Americans. So they had to like make us look like we were a bunch of idiots so that they could uh, they could oppress us more. So the thing that we have to remember is these culture, just because we pass legislation doesn't mean that it erases those cultural norms. And those that are those that have generational wealth, in my opinion, or well, not in my opinion, it's just a fact, will do what they need to do to uphold that. Go and listen to, you know, when they went and occupied the Hamptons and went and spoke to those rich people up there, upper middle class Americans, and what they had to say about all this. They're telling on themselves. So just passing legislation ain't enough. Because that's why we have to have mutual aid. We have to have co-ops. We have to be building other things other than electoral because redlining is still going to exist. And there are going to be wealthy um, black folks, wealthy, you know, people from all backgrounds that once they get there and they get theirs, just like Savvy said, they're going to uphold their those systems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it comes to the green, when it comes to the new deal, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned in that because it is impacting us. Those of us in generational poverty at this mm-hmm. moment who don't have parents that could pay for our college, who aren't going to be inheriting a house. And um, so I think that's, that's a big deal. But if you ignore racism in that, if you ignore sexism and, and the colonial structures in that, 
and you're just writing policy, those biases are still going to exist and they're still going to be able to use them to oppress us. Well said, Zineb. Michael, thank you so much for calling in. I want to make sure we get Dorian as well. Um, Dorian, I made you the next caller. You just have to unmute. Hi, Sabrina. Hello. Oh, man. Hi, everyone. Um, Really, pleasure speaking to you again. You know, I've been listening to what everyone's been saying in regards to, you know, fighting this political system and trying to work through the system and how Everyone is trying to beg. It's, 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 it's really what it boils down to. And I, I just feel like we've tried this and it's not working. It wasn't until I was listening to something maybe on RBN or some media outlet in which there were a lot of black farmers that were struggling. And then, and then it dawned on me. I'm like, why don't we build a second Wall Street, uh, like a, a Black Wall Street. Like, I, I can imagine the how it can be can done. I just, it can, I can just, be totally, I, I'm sure. Can I just chime in real quick, Dorian, I'll let you finish. We've, well, not we, not me personally, but there have been several Black Wall Streets built, and every time they were burned down. Tulsa, yeah. Well, we, we have to do it again. <laughs> it, it might have been burned down, but I can, there's no other way. We've been pushed to the inner cities for the most. And inner cities, as far as getting real estate, we're not going to be able to get it. We've been, like, if you look at the whole redlining aspect of it, so then you might as well go out to some rural area, work with the black farmers, and start going independent because the system is not working. Well, that's, that's what I have to say. Yeah. Well, one thing that Cynthia McKinney said is that there's a lot of open land in the United States that's not even being used. She said, why don't we all just like move there and like, you know, have our own thing? Um, you know, it's like, you know, you're right. Like, we do have to think big. I know uh, Killer Mike has talked about like what you've mentioned um, multiple times. Uh, Killer Mike has talked about like, oh, we need to have like, another black wall street. Well, like we'd have, like, I can tell you right now, it's not even just the Northern inner cities that is having this issue where black people have been pushed out. <laughs> Atlanta is being gentrified. It's happening all mm-hmm. over. So it's just, and it sucks because where are most of the jobs in the cities? So then you have to get, you get pushed out. It happens. It's happening a lot here in Boston. You get pushed out, you get pushed further out. Now you have a longer commute to get to work. So you have a lower quality of life. And again, that goes back to the have and the have nots. The people who have the money who can afford to stay there, stay there. The people who do not have it, they are pushed further out and they have a longer commute. And it's it sucks. And this is why I've told people about this before. This is why I said you have to hold your local politicians accountable, especially when it comes to these housing issues, affordable housing, them letting developers come in and buy up these buildings and push residents out. I've had this happen with multiple friends where they just got a notice one day from their landlord that said, yeah, I sold the building. So you guys got to go.
mm-hmm. worth rent saved up. So it's like that can happen to anyone anytime. And I blame again, this has nothing to do with Joe Biden. I, I blame the local politicians, the mayors for allowing those things to happen. And those are people that you have direct access to. You can go to your mayor's office, you know. Hey, you know what? I completely agree with you. And but here's the other thing. We talk about representation, but I, I don't see how we have it. And I feel like if you go out to those areas and, and there's a way to appeal to these people and you are going to have it's I feel like we're going to have classism and it's going to take a long time to erode that mindset. But you have to appeal to people like they have wealth and not just going to arbitrarily give it up. But if you can make it work for them, then perhaps they'll go along with your plan. But And my idea was, hey, you know what? Get people to buy this land, develop it, and they'll make money because people will come. People are tired of living in these particular areas. If you can develop an area that had uh, single-family homes that are priced fair or economical, then guess what? People will go. Or if you put these, like, instead of trying to get to have them legislate it, what, what you want, build what you want. Yeah, I think that's all a good point. And I would say define representation because I've seen where we've had like people, they get into these positions and like Cornell West says, black face, high place. They get in those positions and they're black, just like us, but then they sell out their own community for money. So it's like, you know, it's it's the Obamas, it's the Kamala Harris, it's it's the Oprah Winfrey's, it's the Tyler Perry's. Like, yeah, they, they get there. But then when they get there, they sell their own people out. So it's just like, I don't even know what representation really means anymore at this point. Um, But I'm going to go ahead to the next caller and bring in uh, Lance. Hold on, Sabrina. Can I just, I just want to address. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I lost you. Hold on. Wait, let me see if I can bring you back. Uh, Dorian, I, I invited you to speak so you can come back in as a speaker. But go ahead, Lance. Yeah, hey, Savvy. Great to talk again. Uh, Hello. Hey, hey. As far as parties and all that, yeah, third parties. Um, it's in my little profile there. I'm a born-again anti-ismist, right? Like, quit drinking, everybody's got to quit. Quit smoking, everybody's got to quit. I want everybody to quit parties. Founders had their problems. we got to channel our inner Madison on this one. I'm an anti-ismist. All run as independents. And I'll, I'll just give a quick comparison, you know, back in the old days, right? The Democratic Party had the solid South. You could not be a Republican in the South, mostly conservative, but it was populist and they were all Democrats. As LBJ said, with the civil rights and voting rights and all that, we're going to lose the South for at least a generation. Okay, that's history. They pushed out the working class. That was the upper Midwest a lot. And the rust belt where I live going all the way across, really, you know, the, the upper uh, part of the, you know, temperate zone there. So that was the, the working class, uh, uh, you know, union uh, uh, Democrat. Then you had the coastal elites like you did now. Only it was younger elites with the right out of Berkeley and free speech rights and all that jazz. 
and the, the restlessness after World War II. So there was a fervor for that kind of JFK and the new generation, all that. But so the Democrats in the South and didn't worry about what the working class, you know, ra- you know, white guys and didn't and the you know the, the coastal elites did not worry about. Oh, well, I don't know, I like this guy or that bill for president, but there's these Southern racist Democrats. It was a coalition. It was almost like similar-ish. It was nothing like having it. Be better to have parties. But suppose you had a union type party. And you had kind of a, like a Jeffersonian, right? Liberal elite party, like Jeffersonian type party. Then you had kind of a Jacksonian, like white populist elite party, like you have in the South or something. So yeah, it was like having different parties. And there was always a three to one edge, Democrat to Republican in terms of uh, registration, which is why the Republicans did real well nationally, because they put together these solid coalitions. It's in their DNA to always have to come together because there were so few of them. And that's why the Republicans could always unite across ideological lines. People don't realize it's not some new thing. It's just in their DNA. And the Democrats seem to think, even lefties, that somehow we still have that like coalition is going to happen. And that was something brilliant that I think it was, um, if it was, um, who, uh, was it, wasn't Aaron or whoever it was, or Mark talking about this. Yeah. Uh, that it's just gone. We don't have those same coalitions and we're fooling ourselves on the left. That's why we need to be just, it, you know, anti-ismist, you know. It's just the case where they're going to say, oh, I agree with everything you say. Oh, you're a socialist. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a libertarian or vice versa. And they just won't, you won't have that kind of reaching across it. What I want to do, right? Get kids together from the inner city. There's urban gardening, right? Some of the stuff they sell, you know, they do their thing. There's 4-H clubs that sleep with the animals at the state fairs. They're doing, you know, agricultural stuff all the time. Not everybody in the country does. So you bring those groups together, kind of 4-H meets urban gardeners. All of a sudden, after a while, they'll, learn their politics they won't be starting with that it'll be an agricultural kind of connection right food everybody in the planet eats you know so that's among the things i want to do you know that's like my one of my projects just bringing people together that have nothing to do with politics the politics to take care of itself in many ways you know um and you know the 15th ward you know was a neighborhood that got crushed in the 60s and uh just crushed uh syracuse the place i live it's a, it's a northern jim crow town 48% child poverty, number one in the country. Uh, we're first in the state in uh, racially, uh, you know, uh, uh, focused poverty. Uh, Buffalo five, Rochester's eight. Really, really bad. And the 15th Ward was a tight-knit community, and they were kind of shoved out of another area that got kind of taken over over time, and they were all wound up. 98% of all the black people in, the, in my hometown were in one neighborhood about a half-mile square square area. And it was near the university area, near downtown, kind of wedged in between, kind of, you know, uh, you know, just there. It wasn't like in some weird place. It was just a regular neighborhood. And it's just where they wound up. And they only, only, only people they, that would rent, uh, that would, they could borrow from were the Jews. That was it. And so there was a tight bond. It, there was clashes, I think, sometimes. You know, the business owners did sometimes tend to be, but no, but also the black business owners, you know, the pastors or the, uh, the, uh, the store owners. And it was super tight knit. And it was poverty, but it was lower middle class and middle class. And it was super tight in the community. And when they destroyed that neighborhood, they forced them to rent. Oh, oh, some of them got, quote unquote, free housing. Yeah, but all that, that was it. They got free housing and then there's nothing to hand on to anybody. So they would have much rather had their little house that was going to be worth something, you know, that they could have in their family for generations that they owned or they could sell. Okay, so it took away all that equity. Speaking of reparations, you, I would end with that. But they, those deeds go back a long way. It's a good place to start is to say, yeah, let's just get these actual deeds and say we took all these specific properties. But I, I, like I said, no, you don't need a deed or a receipt to get reparations. I'm just saying 
That'd be one part of the bucket that they could find money that specific that was taken away, literally taken away. Then do the interest for how many generations and then give you know start with that. And my uncle worked for those people. He's an older uh, 91 Italian guy. And he always got along, treated everybody the same, and, you know, and they treated him great, you know, and all that. And, uh, you know, it's just like we have to get together, you know, and work together like everybody's saying. Could I make just one more? I don't know. Just a weird anecdote, but not. And Zainab was talking about people in Appalachia doing and, and, and religious people, evangelicals even, right, uh, doing mutual aid. If I could just do this two-minute anecdote, because there's nothing really to respond to. I've spoken about this other stuff before. I was just chiming in with some of that. It's how the Democratic and, and what Mark was talking about, about the Dems. But, okay, traveling out west in 1982, I'm north of California, or northern California, going to Vancouver to meet someone that I'd met in Denver. There's this town that I'm going through, and it was like a Route 17 in the east where it was not limited access. There was stores here. There was even crossroads of, you know, to residential areas. Because uh, it was Route 1. Route 5 is like 95, super, super packed. Uh, this is the coastal highway in California. Super wide shoulders. They had, and so there were shops along, you know, off the road a ways, you know, uh, set back. And it was organic food, you know, little grocery. And it was just book, alternative like bookstores. And it was, uh, uh, you know, juice, juicer shops, juice shops. And they actually had a street sign. It was two parallel lines going across with a stick figure on its knees with a little little wine bottle. It was literally a sign, one of those ones that didn't have to have words, wino crossing. And in out west everywhere, you, you could bike super wide. You could bike on the highway. So I was literally in one of the most progressive, had to be the most progressive town in America. I couldn't get a ride for six hours. Long story short, I finally get a ride. Everybody's yuppie. Everybody looks like liberalist. They don't look like they're conservative wealthy, you know, sports cars and Volvos and all the rest. I'm like, why did it take so long? He's like, everybody grows pot. Everybody. It's too lucrative, whether you smoke pot or not. One plant gets you 10000 a year, 1000 a pound, three pounds per plant, three, three or four harvests a year. Everybody makes ten grand off of one plant. So everybody's got like three pot plants. It gets tricky if you do it outside because they were sending helicopters over. and It was a big struggle back then in the 80s. So it wasn't easy to do, but everybody had three plants. That was 25, 30,000 without even blinking an eye. So the DEA agents, people that looked like me, that were 25-year-old hippie-looking types, and I hitchhiked them up and down the highway, so nobody's going to pick up people like me. Oh, my God, right? I got to get to the punchline. So in between, I get these digital delinquents who had stolen a car, packed it with a bunch of stolen stuff from, from L.A. They were on their way to Seattle, and they were going to park the car and give it back all safe. And I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy, right? I was going to continue with them, and we felt we stopped at a rest area, a site of gas over the night. Okay, so they uh, they left me there. Okay, I'm in a rainforest. It was sunny that day, and they luckily they took all my stuff out of the car. I was good to go. You have to hear the upshot of this story. It's amazing. So it's a, it's a it, it was sunny, but then all of a sudden this big black cloud cloud came over. The whole sky got black like immediately. And it was it, if you've ever been in Oregon in like October in the rain, rainy season, it's nuts. I've never seen rain like that. I mean, like the whole sky opened up. There wasn't raindrops. It was just literally just just a solid column of water completely everywhere you could look for like an hour and then an hour and a half and then two hours. Meanwhile, I've been up for two days. I had to eat. There was no nobody came into the rest area. I had to do something. I go out to the highway. Forty five minutes it took for a, for the first two or three cars. Then a 30 foot Winnebago pulls up. You won't believe this. I get on. I'm a drowned rat. I mean, I was drenched within two seconds. An hour later, I must have looked disgusting. I had this wool thing, the army blanket around me. 
I was a, the most, you know, drenched rat, you know, vile creature on the planet. I, the first thing I see when I get up into this 30 foot Winnebago is an 18 inch tall Jesus statue, right? And it's an elderly couple. And he's listening to an Amway tape talking about, man, this amp, literally an Amway tape about how Amway is this great way to make money, the multi-marketing scheme. I get on the thing and the old lady, the, you know, the nice, you know, elderly woman, his wife says, would you like something to eat? She, she brings out two full sandwiches and a banana and all the milk and cookies or whatever I wanted. Then they stop at their friend's house and say, you know, we're going to be going in here for an hour. Um, help yourself to the facilities. Uh, there's a shower back there. You know, go ahead and get yourself going. So, of course, when you're traveling, I had my little plastic bag tied tight. So I had one set of dry clothes to put on and I refreshed and groomed. This is how and this guy was listening. These guys were obviously evangelical Christian with the Jesus statue listening. to I not making this up. How could you make this up? An Amway tape, the most evangelical right wing conservative types you could ever possibly meet. And they treated me like a king. After being treated like garbage in the most, uh, you know, uh, not getting a ride for six hours in what had to be the most progressive town in America. I mean, I, th I think that's an interesting anecdote for what it's worth. Thanks so much for that, Lance. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, we shouldn't just, like, automatically judge people, right? Like, you never know. You never know who's going to be the person that's going to help you, you know. But again, if you write them off based on. Oh, if, if Lance would have just written them off and be like, oh, no, I'm not going to let them help me because they have like this Jesus statue. Yeah. You know, you never know. Yeah. No, I, and, and no one would, would say no to that because they would be a drowned rat. But yeah, but I mean, it was just like such a lesson for me at 25 to say, wow, not that I didn't like religious people, but it was like, whoa. But the, the juxtaposition of the way that the being shunned by this like super progressive community of pot smoking, you know, uh, like latter day, not even hippies, but yuppies. And they treated me like, like, you're not welcome. And then being welcomed so, so freely by these evangelical Christians, it was like, whoa, I had my head spinning. It was quite something. But yeah, don't judge people by their, uh, by their, and, and it really was docile by what Zayna was talking about, which is, this is what people do at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, you know, maybe there's a few like neo-Nazi MAGA Trumpers who go in and do their Zig Heil to something. That's not, that's not, that's not even some of the MAGA people. Some of them used to be Sanders people. They just got screwed by the, by the, uh, the dot-com bubble. Then they got screwed again by the 2008 crash. And that's why they were at this, at the January 6th. And it may, didn't make sense till I read about how, why would these affluent people on private planes? Because they got crushed again and again and again. And so they were, they were wrong to do with it. And even Chris Hedges, you've heard him talk about it. Of course, Abby, Adam, is that he talked about, of course, you got to understand where these people are coming from. He wrote a whole book about how horrible they are, but they're desperate and they're, they're down there. But in between all that, they're feeding their kids. Everybody wants the same thing, don't they? Like the Black Uhuru reggae band, you know, everybody wants a happy end. Everybody wants food for their family. Everybody wants a roof over their head, you know. Um, and once you just put people together, whether it's just kids from the country and kids from the city, whose parents maybe hate each other's guts, but they won't know about that. They'll just learn about how to grow squash and how to sell it in the city and vice versa, and it'll be like all, all big one happy family, but it doesn't have to start with politics. Let's, let's let that be the third. Oh, and my, my, my show tonight was going to be about affecting change uh, socially and politically through art and music and the written word. we got to get back to reading, folks. Again, like Chris Hedges says, it ain't going to happen on Twitter. It's great to tell the people about the, the latest rally you're going to have. But you got to go face to face, and you got to write it down and send it to people like the old-fashioned pamphlets where people used to hand them out. And, that's right. And, that's right. 
That's right. Thanks so much for calling in, Lance. Uh, I want to make sure Dorian has to finish his uh, statement here. Uh, Dorian, if you want to go ahead and unmute, and then the capitalism is going to be the last caller. All right. Thank you, Sabrina. I just want to follow up with you on, as far as like the celebrity aspect of it, and um, you said like the Obamas, the people that they seem to, as soon as they get to that position, they they seem to just turn their back. And sometimes I, it reminds me of like when I was in school, uh, I went to private school, so for a private college, and I'm the only black person in the room for some of my classes. And, you know, it's, it's tough to maintain in those spaces, but it's necessary to be in those spaces to understand what's going on. And they have no allies. So at the end of the day, you have to you have to use people's selfishness to your advantage. The reason why I say like you can't necessarily work within a system such as that, I think that you have to have all fronts in which what people are doing as far as like electoral politics, let people do what they can. Have them fight to get grants to go to that particular area or fund federal funding. But as far as trying to stay within the system, the land's bought. <laughs> yeah, we we don't have any real skin in the game. So then, if you appeal to like, let's say, to these wealthy people, because we do have a class of society, and it's going to take a long time to get out of that. Get them to buy the land, and they will want to develop in those areas because black people who have money, and there's there's a lot of them. They out. I just read an article about. Like a lot of black like professionals, and they want to like be in their neighborhoods, but they don't. They don't necessarily want to integrate into other neighborhoods. And they're like, we would love to like build, have our own, because if you really think about it, we I don't think we really actually have our own. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that, Dorian. That's a good point. Can I say something to that really, really quick? I agree with Dorian 100%. But one thing that I haven't heard talked about in spaces, I I always hear, how can we reach the rich people? How can we, you know, um, how can we change people who we view as conservatives' minds? How can we do this? But I hear less about actually rallying all the people that do agree. And that's how the right wing wins is because they, you know, the Tea Party rallied people with common interest. And even though they weren't the majority of the country, they were effective because they rallied. I think in like these spaces, when we're talking about class solidarity and we're talking about that, I think, you know, it comes down to, in my opinion, one of the things that we're missing is rallying the poor people, you know, um, like the, the poor people's campaign became kind of pageantry, right? Um, I don't know if you guys have experienced that. I have. Um, and I appreciate some of what they do, but they have become kind of pageantry and they have become sometimes trying to appeal to the elitist. Um, why? That's our colonized mindset. That's our capitalized mindset that we have to appeal to the managerial class that has oppressed us forever for us to be able to do this because they're the ones with the money. They're the ones with the capital. And I love your idea, Dory, and I'm just kind of speaking overall because um, we do still have to work in the system that exists right now as we dismantle it. But I think that we need to rally around each other. We're so focused sometimes on changing people's minds and avoiding language that'll alienate and avoiding saying truth because 
Um, I think if we speak our authentic truth, just like I was saying, Charles Booker, when he came out authentic, he did not ignore social issues and he could have won. He was extremely popular. He was polling way over McConnell. The Democratic Party, they did everything to oppress his election because of that. And he did not ignore social issues. Now the DNC is, or the DSCC has come in and taken over his campaign and they're working in this modern frame set, you know, that they always come in to my area at least and do and he's losing he's tanking because he's not standing for anything um so i think that when it when it comes to this when we're talking about rallying and stuff we speak our truths we rally around each other on the issues that we can't agree on that doesn't mean that we ignore other issues where we have differences and we have to remember as we dismantle the system that there's going to be vacuums created and who steps into that power if we're working with the boogaloo boys and we're working with kkk members and we're working with people that think that we shouldn't exist or we're working with wealthy people that have been up you know upholding this system forever that those are just truths and as that vacuum is created, then they may maintain the very systems that we're trying to dismantle. So I just think that we have to be cognizant of that, in my opinion, and we have to start rallying each other. Why can't the poor rally together with each other without us having to try so hard to reach rich people? We're the majority. Why are we trying to reach rich people? Let them go and vote for their, you know, liberal elitist people and uh, let them go and, and do what they do with the Democratic Party. We will change their minds, in my opinion, by doing Doing our actions and by pushing legislation and by running people and by creating mutual aid within ourselves and our own communities by by building up co-ops by doing what we can amongst ourselves and then we will push the system because we're the majority but if we're always spending our energy which is what they want us to do to appeal to them because every mainstream media pundit tries to appeal to rich people you know, all a lot of these leftist pundits out there trying to use language to appeal to rich people. Stop. Let's appeal to each other. You know, and it doesn't mean alienating rich people. God, they've had a platform forever. Let's appeal to each other. That's a good point, Zineb. And some of those left uh, left media people are also rich people. <laughs> all right, capitalism, you're on the mic. You're closing us out tonight. Just unmute. Hi, Miss Dooby Dooby Doo. So uh, I need to change my first name. I am new to this whole app and I didn't realize it wasn't going to read off my last name, which is capitalism as a body bag for the future. So I'm going to change that. <laughs> um, so I, I've heard a lot of people just one, validate a lot of my views that I have and two, really open my eyes to a wider perspective of viewpoints. But I've, I've seen that there's a lot of binary thinking and um, that it's like either this or it's that, or it's, you know, it's either class reductionist or a race reductionist, which I have just learned about in the last like six months, you know, and I started reading it and just coming from like an ignorant space. I almost didn't feel, I feel like a lot of this talk is coming from like the college educated. I am just a working class, rural Southern boy out here. And so when I started hearing all this talk, I go, I feel like there's so much indoctrination to one side or the other that there's this nuance that's missing that it's both. It's both class and race issues that have to be addressed. Um, I'm ADHD, so I, like, there are so many topics that I wanted to like kind of wrap up into a few questions um, because I am not certain. And so many of y'all are very certain, you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, I come with a lot of uncertainty. So some of the questions I had was, if we roll back, because this is historic, 
a lot of the issues that we're dealing with in the present are deep rooted way in the past to like white supremacy and capitalism. And I was like, which one came first? White supremacy? Did white supremacy develop capitalism? Did it develop? Did white supremacy society, right? Create capitalist economic system to benefit white supremacy? Supremacy? Or did capitalism create white supremacy do you know what i mean was this you know this is going back to the moors time into like when europe was trash and the moors came through and that whole history right and i'm like trying to figure out where how far back does this history go to kind of because it can always be tied back to, to today and so um if it was a racial issue first that created right like i would say that white supremacy is a racial issue <laughs> Um, if it created capitalism to subjugate all the other races, then do we need to start attacking uh, um, capitalism from that mind frame, from that perspective, from that root point? You know what I mean? Or did capitalism create white supremacy? Did, did the functioning of that economic system create the benefit of a certain group? And that group happened to be white Europeans, and then they exploited that system and exploited everybody underneath that. Can someone chime in and if they know that historical answer? Damn. That is a really good question. Like, this is one of those moments when I wish that, like, Caleb Moffin was on this call. <laughs> because do you see where I'm, like, trying to lead it to back to, to the present day? Like, there's a whole history of how this developed, and it, it, it just evolved into this psychotic literally psychotic mess you know and the question is like we want to everybody that's on this left that's here new or not we all have this understanding that race issues are definitely an issue that is unequivocally reparations need to happen how do those reparations come about but you it's like we're trying to come up with solutions on we're so indoctrinated into the capitalist system that we're trying to think of our solutions first inside a capitalist system do we first like like what's the word i'm trying to think do we just like demolish capitalism and pull up a new system and that is the way in which racial issues can then be addressed because racial issues cannot be addressed in a capitalist system that created the racial issues but but first we have to figure out whether or not capitalism created the racial issues or did did the race supremacy thing create capitalism you know what i mean because that could give us a big answer as to how we like move forward to figure out do we have to demolish the system first in order I in real quick yeah 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 I, I first of all this is an excellent question and this is the type of thinking that people need to have in general because it leads to this type of philosophy this type of thinking leads to solutions because it opens people's eyes outside of like you said like that kind of binary uh solution that it's it's not either one or the other but when you look at it like capitalism was driven by slavery Slavery yeah. is rooted in race in racism, and so you're 100 percent correct in what you're saying. Like, uh, until if you look at the the root of the majority of the issues, not only in this country but around the world, it is capitalism. Capitalism yes. is is at the heart of all of that, and it's 100 percent entangled up with the slave trade. It's entangled. You see, life insurance companies. I don't know if people realize this, but 
they got their start. They they put insurance on slavery on slaves. So the capital that they've amassed over over centuries goes back to and, and is rooted to these types of institutions that they built. And then will you, you bookmark that? Other, will, will you bookmark that point right there, real quick? Yeah. I'm so ADHD. I will like end up forgetting this point. So like slavery, racism. So white supremacy first, or capitalism first. We are, we haven't really deciphered which ones came first, like chicken or the egg thing, right? But slavery or slavery and then racism, it came racism later. The, what we know as racism today, right, was a construct. We know the history around that is a construct that was developed later. And I think it was because of like indigent servants and slaves actually coming together to overthrow their masters. And once they realized that, they started treating the white indigent servants better to like make them side with the white masters. You know what I mean? And then like betray the slave, which kind of goes back into like the middle class getting treated a little bit better to then betray the working class. Do you know what I mean? Like in like a, a side metaphor, but it's like, it's almost like a tactic. You know what I mean? Now, what was different was it was like white and indigent servants versus slaves that were overthrowing white masters because they were having their shared, their shared struggle. Um, and this is not to equate slavery with indigent servitude at all. It was just to point out the history between their union their unity and overthrowing their slave masters. And they had to like put a stop to that real quick. And the way they did that was by treating, you're like, oh, you look like me. Do you know what I mean? You look like me, so you're like me. And you can be like me. You can be better than them. And then giving one generation and treating them that psychologically ended up indoctrinating them into this belief that they could be like their masters. It's much like the poor person today that's suffering at the same economic um struggles the same condition material conditions as a poor black you could have a racist white person and a racist black person right or i or you know someone that's prejudiced i would say against each other but they literally live the same lives they speak almost the same language eat the same foods have the same struggles right collard greens down here in the south we eat all the same foods poor whites poor blacks right but one person is being convinced that they're better than the other person right and that is dividing that class unity. And that is an age-old tactic that started from, now fast forward after like, let's say white supremacy happened, then slavery, and then you had white indigenous servants come in along with the slaves. And then you have this whole history unfolding. And there's these psychological tactics. There's this warfare that's happening to keep the divide. That's being practiced today. This is how I see it, you know? And it's, is that falling under white supremacy, obviously falling under white supremacy, falling married with an economic system, right? Um, we have a white supremacy political structure paired with capitalism. But I'm like, I want to go all the way. I have so many questions about the root, the very root. This wasn't always there, right? This hasn't always just been. At one point it became, you know, and it evolved. And I almost want to like reverse engineer the shit. <laughs> Does that make uh, sense, Sabby? <laughs> yeah, I would say capitalism was there first. And the oh. reason why I say that is because historically, if you go all the way back, all mm -hmm. the way back, remember, the Europeans didn't even know that there were other races until they traveled. Exactly. Remember that. Until they started actually traveling and trying to conquer different land. They didn't know there were other races until they traveled. Because the economic system created the, the classist system, right? right. And then when the class unity started happening, they created racism in order to divide the class. 
Right. But they, they already had uh, capitalism issues and class issues before they started to travel. For example, if you look at like the kings and the queens and the monarchs and all that stuff. Yeah, I've seen like paintings of Moors in like very righteous places, like high level positions in European society. They looked, right. you know what I mean? And that race wasn't an issue at that point. Right. It was all about money and wealth back then. So if yeah. you think about it, like if you go back to, I've shown this, this graph, this picture on my show multiple times, it talks about um, medieval feudalism. And then it talks about corporate feudalism. Yeah. If you look at like medieval feudalism, they already had that class system in place. They didn't care about race. They were like, we're rich or poor. Goodbye. <laughs> Exactly. And the yeah. kings and the queens had everything and the townspeople had barely nothing. Yeah. So they already had the capitalism piece in place. Then when they started to travel and they realized, oh, we're going to lands and the people here have darker skin than the people in our country. Yeah. So then they saw them as, oh, they're less than because they don't look like us. Yeah, well, that's fast forwarding a whole bit of history because in between there were the Moors, right? Remember yeah. that whole history? That was in between that point where they got to that conclusion of, oh, blacker skinned, less than, right? There was this point where blacker skin wasn't less than because Moors brought Europe out of dark ages. You know what I mean? There was this whole history where like race didn't matter as much as much as like wealth, right? Like and and Africa had lots of wealth. The Moors who came there had lots of wealth and lots of advancements in technology or technology at that time. You know what I mean? Um, whole structures and all that. And I think that there might have been a psychological um like uh, what's it called? Almost a knife in their psyche, right? Oh, then they sort of realize, okay, well, they're different than me, but why are they, why do I feel less than them, right? This is what white people in Europe are feeling like, because they're bringing them out of this dark age. You know what I mean? And they I think from there, there was this like ego, you know, we always often leave out psychology when it comes to all of this. And we need to really get like clinical psychologists that, that understand like race psychology and all this stuff in history, like all hands on deck to like really dissect every bit of how this even evolved. Right. Because if we don't reverse engineer this and know the monster and how it evolved to this, how can we really defeat it? Right. We're See, just going to. This is why I always tell people I always bring it back to the class issue, because even going back to like B.C. days, class was the issue. Number one. It's always who has and who has not. Right. Who has and who has not. And also, if you want to think about it as well, you have to think about the fact that why why did they in terms of uh, slavery, African slaves coming to the United States? What was the one thing they were looking for? They had trades. They had skills that Europeans did not have. I can tell yeah. you South Carolina, and I went through the whole thing um, in Charleston, South Carolina. If you ever go to visit Charleston, you should do that tour. Where it's only they three hours from me. <laughs> I do. I didn't need to go do that tour. Yeah, it's a trolley tour. And they explain to you the history of slavery in Charleston, South Carolina. And the reason when I've mentioned Charleston, because that was one of the major exports in the United States of slaves from mm, Africa. Mm. During that I'm right outside of Savannah and that's huge on slave history too. I mean, Georgia yeah. just South, this South area very much is for sure. Yeah. And, and by the way, the North is not, um, you can't ignore the North from this either because Rhode no. Island, it was Charleston and Rhode Island. They were the largest slave exports 
um, Mm -hmm. in the United States. So in Charleston, they brought slaves in there because they knew how to make rice. That was the biggest, one of the biggest trades there in South Carolina was rice. Huge commodity. Huge economy for that. North Carolina, it was cotton. They knew how to do it. The Europeans didn't. In Rhode Island, it was rum. They were bringing mm-hmm. slaves in to do to make rum. So, again, it, it all came back to class was first. The capitalism issue was first. And yep. then it was like, oh, wait a minute. We're going to these other lands and they have trades. They know how to do things that we don't know how to do. And of course, because they were darker skinned, they were like, well, we see them. They're less than us. We don't understand them. So they treated them as less than. And they said, let's bring them to our country. Exactly. Do the same same work they're doing their country, but we're not going to pay them for it. The reason why I'm asking the question of the past to bring it to this present moment, right? Or like, you know, that history of America's first starting and all that, and then bringing it forward and forward to present, right? Is because once we understand fully how we got to this present, I mean, fully all the way through the psychology, all of it, the economics, how it all developed to here, it gives us a bigger picture of how moving forward and defeating it can happen. So I was saying, um, in the comment section, we were having this debate about um, not not addressing like cultural issues to and not not like I said, I am fully about addressing cultural issues. Just I was like, I first I'm so methodical in my steps that like I feel like the conversation is like, oh, the hyper the hypothetical in our heads about us having conversations with conservative Trump supporters in rural Georgia or, or Kentucky, whatever, is like. 30 days later after talking to them for 30 days straight. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, I'm talking about day one. <laughs> like, hi, my name is capitalism is a body back for the future. No, I'm going to be like, my name's Gordon, by the way, but I'm going to, I'm going to be like, my name's Gordon. <laughs> I cannot be like, hi, my name's capitalism is a body back for the future. So here's Marxist theory. And this is going to be our dialectic. And they're going to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Excuse my French, but you know what I'm saying? They're just going to sh- It's not going to work. You know? Now, I want to find out what is the methodical structure of the dialogue that can happen. Not like, um, what was that one lady's name? She was so wise. Oh, it's not going to happen overnight. Yes, it's not going to. And I always see her little, uh, I always see her little uh, super chats or whatever. And they're always giving me, uh, just giving me life every time I see it. But yeah, it's not going to happen overnight. But what is, there is a system within that that we have to make. You know what I mean? Just in the conversations. This is so complex. I think people don't, they are underestimating. You know why we're not organized? Is because we have a system that we're subjugated under that has been taken hundreds and hundreds of years to develop we are just now newborn babies like born yesterday basically right trying to figure out this same type of organizing the organ the trials and errors capitalism has got to make to to create a well-oiled machine right well oil well rigged machine we're over here like just born we don't even have barely learned to blink our eyes do you know what i'm saying and it's like we have to understand that like just the dialogue alone is a it needs to have a structure Right now, we're not trying to create capitalism, but you need to realize that capitalism was just created out of thin air. There was a whole methodical process for hundreds of years that created how efficient it is in doing what it does. And we're not efficient because the monster, the boss <laughs> that we're trying to defeat in the final stage is so evolved. 
You know what I mean? We're like microorganisms. These things are upright walking human beings with the most complex brain in the whole universe, you know? And we're trying to defeat something and we're not, we're underestimating what we're up against. And the thing is, it's like, in order to do that, you need to realize how it evolved. And so we have to evolve our our methodology the same. So even in conversations, that has to be broken down into a complex way. You know what I mean? So day one, how do I approach this person? Day 30... Yeah. No, no. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I thought you were, I, I have a, I'm on the spectrum. So sometimes when people pause for a moment, I don't oh, realize. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> um, but I was going to say that, you know, to answer that question, I've talked to thousands and thousands and thousands of voters across the country, conservatives, you know, um, a lot unregistered people. So they weren't like necessarily registered. Are they in your everyday life constantly? Um, some of them were. That's who I'm looking at. Cause I don't have that access. I just well, have access to regular everyday people that are in my life that I need. That's right. the only reach out that I can make. Like, well, I know I that you have a different platform, but I'm just a regular schmo, you know? Yeah. Well, from what I learned from like, um, you know, I don't necessarily know that I had a platform. I was calling for, you know, candidates and stuff like that and just, or reach, just reaching out to people or having people ask questions. Even my uncle is an example of this. He's a Trump supporter. My brother was a Trump supporter. But what I found was when I talked to them, I'll give one example. So when I talked to them about tuition-free college, I framed it in a different way. I didn't start out saying, do you support tuition-free college? And yeah. use that label that's already been demonized, right? Mm-hmm. I said, we ain't got doctors. I said, could you, was it hard for you to get, I would always ask them, was it hard for you to get primary care physician? How hard is it for you to go to your specialist? And they're like, hell yeah, it's, it takes forever, blah, blah, blah. Or I, or I don't have health care at all. And then I, then I would tie that into, well, how come our kids don't get to go to school to become nurses and doctors? How come it's just the people from the elite, their kids get to go become the lawyers, the scientists, the doctors, the, you know, I was like, how come, you know, our kids, if they want to do that, are either saddled with student loan debt or denied because they, they you know, and, and I say those people, they uphold the systems that maintain that it's their people that are always going to have their foot in the door. Why can't yeah. and I, and this was especially with parents, I would say, you know, why can't our kids, why can't, you know, my daughter go to school to be a physician if she wants to be a damn physician. If all of our kids were able to in our communities do that, we'd have a whole hell of a lot more doctors. I, and then at the same time, why do companies out there get to profit off our health or off of sickness instead of health? And then all of a sudden, when I start talking about why, why, why don't they get the same? Why can't they do that? Um, then it sort of flipped a switch. And I there was very, very few conservatives that disagreed with me. But the key was that I never started out with isms. I never said, you know, I'm calling for yeah. candidate. I'm calling like for my name. <laughs> I started out talking to them and asking them, what is the problem in your area? What are the things that are impacting your life? Then I give them resources that I know of in the community to be able to help them. And then we start talking about how can we better help people and what are our pain points? And then go into then talking about the politics of it all. But I never started out the conversation. Yeah. Do you remember me talking about the psychological aspect and how we're brainwashed and there's a whole occult, like the left and right wing is an occult system. It really is. It's a death cult. There's no, it's undeniable. Um, Everything leads to death. (laughs) Okay. I was going to ask you something about that because I'm sorry, I didn't mean to chime in, but yeah. In regards to the, the psychology of it. And I was thinking about this recently. And that was the Jane Elliott experiment. Mm 
the blue eye, brown eye yeah. experiment. And when you really think about that, if you can get a child to do that at that age, what else can you get them to do? Where- I imagine the elite, when they're thinking about that, they're like, wow, we've got a good crop. They've hired the most top-notch psychologists that are highly trained master degree people to go into think tank groups that they literally, capitalism has hired people to just paint McDonald's red and yellow because they realize that it'll affect us thinking that we're hungry, make us more hungry. It'll make us believe that it's faster. Do you know what I mean? They spend millions of dollars in one minute commercials. You think that it's just what you're seeing that's convincing you of something or is it subliminal? Like they're studying so much that we're so ignorant to. And like when I say it is such a highly refined evolved system that when i say we're a newborn babe we're not even a new we're a sperm cell trying to find the womb at this point you know what i mean like and they are full-fledged walking fully evolved humans like if you compare where the where our left is that's happening in this chat right versus a system we're up against and we cannot underestimate that because if we don't what happens is we start tend we tend to forget the complexities we tend to forget why we're in binary mode we tend for, to forget that the binary mode that we're in has been indoctrinated and brainwashed into our psychology since the moment we learned to speak and talk and walk. You know what I mean? And that's the vast majority of us. And like, I can get my parents to at, agree with everything, <laughs> everything I say. And the moment I make the first next step, right? This is years of work on my parents. Just my parents, because that's what my quickest outreach right that's who is closest to me i can literally put my hand out and touch touch them and make an effect right so i've worked so much on that but the psychology is so deep that like they can agree on everything finally and yet when i say okay then let's get to the solution right here's the in order to have the solution you have to truthfully acknowledge the problem and as soon as i say that it stops it ends and i'm like oh my god how has it ended there? How can you agree with everything in the moment? They equate, they, they, they have contributed, or in their minds, they have attributed an economic system to their being. Do you know what I mean? Capitalism is democracy. Capitalism is patriotism. Capitalism is, no, it's just an economic system. When I tell people that I'm a Marxist, I don't really consider myself socialist or communist or anything like that because the, you know, that came after Marxism. And I just, I'm looking for a new way forward. I don't even know socialism, communism, or if it's a blend of the two or some new, complete different structure that's going to be the thing. But I know I'm a Marxist, which is an anti-capitalist, which is a critique of capitalism, you know? But even if I tell my parents critiques of capitalism, their brain just completely melts. (laughs) Even after they've agreed with everything. I think that's more common with like older generations because they were fed. Like, think about what their parents were, right? Like my grandparents were like the born in the 19, what? the early 1920s, right? My grandpa died six years ago at 86, basically that generation. They grew up with a rigid propaganda. I mean, there was a lot of propaganda then too. I mean, they literally just put it in their commercials. Like our propaganda today is so much more sophisticated, you know? Um, and we fall victim to it too. At the same time, it weakens it, but strengthens it at the same time. But their propaganda back in the day was like super duper strong. And that was instilled back into our parents or my parents' generation, at least. I'm a millennial. So. Yeah, there there was a lot of anti-Russia, anti-communism, you know, the McCarthyism era. Uh, that was a big part of it as well. Um, we have to undo... To- 
people continue this discussion. You oh, guys. yeah, yeah. Yes, me too. Listen, uh, I'm sorry. I have so many questions and there's like questions that are trying to yeah. allude to solutions because I'm not fully educated on a lot of like the who Sam Cedar thingies that are going on. Right. I have more like ties into like history, um, the understanding of econ of Marxism. You know what I mean? That I'm like reading and stuff and like understanding history and today and like where we can really predict where the future is going through listening to minds of Chris Hedges. And how can we avoid that? How can we attack that? And how we can make a really like a good front you know, to really yeah. attack this because this is so serious and we're running out of time. <laughs> like this is yeah, another no, thing. I, we're I running totally, out of time. I totally hear you. Um, it's actually, it's one o'clock in the morning where yeah. I am. So me too. Um, me Sabi's too. getting a little drowsy, but I feel um, you. I'd love to continue this discussion at another time, but I do want to thank all of you guys for listening tonight and calling in. Thank you guys so much. And um, but I am gonna go ahead and end this episode tonight. So thank you, Sabby. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much.